364 days a year. Being single is a private condition that you can choose to celebrate or mourn on your own time, however you see fit. But on Valentine's Day, it all becomes public. Valentine's Day can be the best day of your life or the worst. When I was 17, it was both. It would have been easier if we just didn't have to go to school. I could have stayed home and watched murder documentaries on Netflix instead of worrying about carnations. Oh, why carnations? Well, every year in February, schools have this fundraiser where for a couple of bucks, you can send a friend or a crush a carnation with a little message attached to it on Valentine's Day. And they don't hand the flowers out discreetly or at the end of the day. Oh no, it happens right in the middle of class. After which point, the lucky recipients get to carry these flowers around as a testament to their lovability all day long. I mean, it seemed like a lot of fun, but I wouldn't actually know because I never got any. My friends said it was a waste of money, even though their boyfriend sent them carnations every year and they didn't seem to complain about that. But there I was, year after year, carrying around the loudest nothing you've ever seen. And that year was no different. I spent the whole morning waiting and hoping for one of the delivery people to call my name, but as usual, they never did. By lunch, I was pretty miserable. I sat down with my friends and noticed they all had neat little bouquets sitting next to them on the table. I couldn't believe it. You know, one of you could have spent a measly two bucks on preserving my dignity this year, I said to them, feeling truly awful. They all looked away and felt what I choose to assume was guilt rather than secondhand embarrassment. Finally, one of the boyfriends, an athletic guy named Tim, said, You know, Tess, if you wanted one so bad, you could have just sent one to yourself. I glared at him. His girlfriend glared at him, then hit him in the arm. Or not, he added. His girlfriend was Kim, who at the time was my best friend. You're better off, she said. Who wants to carry around loose, wilting flowers all day long anyway? It's depressing. I crack a smile. Come to the party with us tonight, our friend Jamie, who had beautiful blue eyes and at least six carnations in her pile, said. It'll be fun, and you'll forget all about the stupid carnations. They're not even good flowers. I retract my smile. I am not going to a Valentine's Day house party alone, I said. Everyone's just going to be drunk and hooking up and I'll sit around by myself for a while. Then somehow I'll end up cleaning or helping a girl I don't know get to the bathroom before she pukes. Hard pass. Then Amanda, our most sensitive friend, put a hand on my arm and said, It won't be like that at all. We will hang out with you. Come on, Tess, we love you. Tons of people are going to be there. Maybe you'll meet someone. You never know. I shake my head. Just think about it. Kim said, as the lunch bell rang and we all stood up. I agreed to think about it, then threw out my trash and started the slow hike to my next class. Usually I'm nervous about being late, but that day I didn't care. Slowly, I made my way through the halls. By the time I hit the final stretch, only me and Bailey Grant were in the hallway. Bailey Grant was so popular that I sometimes wondered if she needed a social media manager. She had been getting carnations all day long. Half of them were stuffed into the water bottle pocket of her book bag, and the other half were hanging out of her quilted Chanel purse. There were dozens of them. As she glided toward her next class, staring at her phone, her foot caught on a gap in the flooring, and she tripped a little. Three carnations tumbled out of her bag and hit the floor. 
I didn't see anything, I said with a smile. She laughed and said, you're funny, then walked into the classroom. I was just about to walk in behind her when I saw the carnation still sitting on the ground. One white, two pink. She's not gonna miss them, I said to myself and picked them up. The bell rang a second later and I shuffled past my classroom door and into the bathroom. I held the three carnations out in front of me, then ripped the messages off them, tore the messages into pieces and flushed them down the toilet. Then I slid the flowers into the water bottle pocket of my backpack and walked off to class. I know it was a lie. I know they weren't actually for me, but I felt oddly better. Like the nothing I had been carrying around had quieted down. When the final bell rang, I rushed to meet my friends by our lockers. Look at you, Kim said. See, someone did send you one. Three, in fact. Who were they from? No, I had a choice. I could come clean to my friends and feel pathetic. Or I could lie and keep feeling cool. I chose to lie. I don't know, I said mysteriously. There were no messages. Everybody oohed and awed and laughed and poked me in the ribs. I felt great. Well, now you definitely have to come to the party, Jamie said, which made me feel queasy. I bet whoever sent them to you will be there, Amanda said loudly. Oh, I, I don't know, I said. Then Kim's boyfriend, Tim the Athletic, threw an arm around my shoulder and said, you should go tonight. No matter what, we'll all have fun. My brother got us a handle of Tito's. And before you leave, you can take this. Then he placed a little orange gummy candy in my hand and added, it'll relax you. My friends rolled their eyes. Reluctantly, I agreed to go to the party and shoved the gummy into my purse. I got the address of the party and said I'd meet everyone there at nine o'clock. Against my better judgment, I also promised to dress up. Before I knew it, it was 8.30. I had gotten as dressed up as I reasonably could, but my wide leg black pants and pink crop top seemed underwhelming. Then I had a thought. I grabbed the carnations from the pocket of my book bag and pinned them in my hair. Instantly, I felt better. That afternoon, I had told my parents that I was going to watch sappy movies with my girlfriends later on. So as I bolted for the door, I just yelled, bye. And my mother yelled back, 1 a.m., Tessa, I mean it. And I yelled, okay, and ran out before she could ask any more questions. I got in my car feeling very nervous. Then I remembered the orange gummy. I reached into my bag, pulled it out, and popped it into my mouth. Here goes nothing, I thought, and drove away. The party was only 10 minutes from my house, but as I pulled into the development the party house was in, I realized I didn't know anyone who lived there. The nervousness began to creep back in when I noticed a guy around my age walking down the side of the road. He seemed to just appear out of nowhere. He was tall and lanky, kind of nerdy, but in a good way. He was wearing sneakers and a vintage-style midnight blue velvet jacket, which I thought was impossibly cool. But his hair was a mess, and his right pant leg was ripped. He was by himself, and it was cold out, so I rolled down my window, slowed the car down to a crawl, and yelled, Hey! Are you okay? He turned to look at me, flashed a lopsided smile, and shouted back, Oh, yeah! Just, uh, just trying to get to a party a couple streets over. I brought my car to a stop and said, me too, but you look like you're having a rough time of it. He laughed and shrugged. Yeah, my buddy and I got into a little fender bender. He popped a tire and the car spun into a ditch. He said, oh no, I said. He went on. 
My friend had to wait for AAA to come and pull the car out, so he sent me on ahead. We're going to meet up later at the party. Impulsively, I asked, You want a ride? He thought about it for a minute, then walked over to my window and said, How do I know you're not a serial killer? You don't, I said back. But statistically, you're more likely to be a serial killer than I am, so it's a risk we'll just both have to take. He smiled a big, toothy smile and got in. I'm Tess, I said. I'm Josh, he said back. Nice to meet you, Josh, I say, trying to play it cool while probably blushing. It's nice to meet you too, Tess, he said back. He smelled like pine trees and spearmint gum, two things I really love. Uh, I assume you're going to the party on Saints Ave, he asked. I laughed and realized that we never confirmed we were actually going to the same place. I am indeed, I said. Great, he said, and we both laughed nervously. The radio in my car was tuned into an oldie station, and the Everly Brothers sang, All I Have to Do is Dream. We sang along a little. A few seconds later, I pulled up to the house. It was easy to tell which one it was. The music was loud and there were heart-shaped balloons tied to the mailbox. I'm meeting friends here, by the way, I said. I'm not just showing up alone like a psychopath. <laughs> I immediately realized my mistake. Oh, that's a shame because that's what I'm doing, he said. We laughed some more. And hey, don't worry, he added. You can walk in ahead of me. Trust me, I won't be offended. If I looked as good as you, I wouldn't want to show up with a mess like me either. At that point, I was definitely blushing, but I didn't care. I said, hey, don't talk about my new friend like that. He's had a rough night. Besides, we can fix this. I put the car in park and rummaged around in my purse for a safety pin, then pulled the white carnation out of my hair and fastened it to his jacket. See? Much better, I said as I buttoned up my coat. He looked at me, smiled a genuine smile, and said, Perfect. You're a lifesaver, Tess. Then we got out of the car and walked in the door together. My friend saw me right away and called my name. I waved, then turned back to see if Josh wanted to maybe come hang out with us, but he was already gone. My friends rushed at me sloppily, somehow already drunk. They made me a vodka with bright red fruit punch, and we talked for about 40 seconds before they all wandered off with their boyfriends to find dark corners. I knew it. I dumped the horrible vodka drink into a plant and spent an hour or so wandering around trying not to clean up spent solo cups before plopping myself down on an empty couch. Took out my phone, texted my friends something passive aggressive about their bad behavior and muttered, God, you're so pathetic to myself. Not missing a beat, I heard a voice say, Hey, don't talk about my new friend like that. She's had a rough night. I looked up and there was Josh in his midnight blue jacket, my carnation still pinned to his lapel. I smiled and said, hey, it's you again. Uh, my friends ditched me. They all have dates and they're doing what people on dates do, I guess. He made a slightly disgusted face and said, rude people on dates, maybe. I sighed and said, yeah and looked at my sneakers as though maybe they held the secrets to not crying in front of cute boys between their laces. Josh inched a little closer and said, well, I could be your date. I'm not rude, you're not rude. Maybe we'll even out the room a little. I looked up quickly, leaving the tears in my lap and searched his face for signs of a joke. 
that there weren't any to be found. Just kind eyes. That sounds great, I said quietly. The rest of the night passed in a wonderful blur. We talked and laughed and played people-watching games under our breath. When an argument broke out between two drunk lacrosse players, Josh grabbed my hand and pulled me across the room to get my coat. We slipped out the back door to get some air. I shivered a little and he buttoned up my coat and took both of my hands in his and said, this is the strangest and best Valentine's Day I've ever had. And then he kissed me under the bright February moon. I had never felt that happy before. The moment was so perfect that it felt fake, like something that couldn't possibly happen to me. I wished I could trap a piece of that moment in my pocket and keep it forever. It was a perfect snapshot of what it felt like to be beautiful and special and seen. Bailey Grant could keep her carnations. I didn't need them anymore. It felt like the air was buzzing. No, wait, it was my pocket that was buzzing. I pulled out my phone to see three missed calls and four texts from my mother. It was 1.30 and I was not home. Shit, I said, and I began to panic, but I desperately didn't want to leave. It's my mom, I said, I'm so late. I have to go or I'll never be allowed to see you again. I fumbled for my keys. Oh no, I would hate that, he said with a grin. I looked into his kind eyes and said, hopefully, uh, did your friend ever make it here? Do you need a ride home? He looked blankly at my face for a second, as though he had forgotten the first part of the night ever happened for just a moment, then said, No, I mean, yeah, he didn't come. I guess I do need a ride. Are you sure you have time to take me? It's not that far. I looked at my phone knowing that I didn't have time, but that I was going to make it anyway. Of course, I said. You're a good date, he said, and grabbed my hand. We rushed in the back door, pushed through the crowded house, then went out the front door and down the street to where I parked my car. We jumped in and I started the engine. Where do you live, I asked. 54 Willow Street, he said. I plugged it into my GPS. Only six minutes away, not bad. The radio went from commercial to music, and once again, the Everly Brothers sang, All I Have to Do is Dream. I guess... I only hear this song when you're in my car, I said with a smile. Well, I hope you like it, because you're probably going to hear it a lot, he said. I blushed yet again. As we got close to our destination, Josh said, it's the second house on the left after the stop sign. I coasted to a stop, and my phone buzzed angrily. I looked down to see that my mother was calling again. Two seconds, I said to Josh, and then texted my mom that I fell asleep watching movies, but I was on the way home now. I apologized and said that I couldn't talk because I was driving, and then I hit send. That should do it, I said, and then looked over to find an empty seat next to me. Josh, I said, looking around. I put the car in park and looked in the back seat, but it was empty. I got out and looked around to see if he started walking to his door. Maybe his parents were mad too but the road was empty and silent. I pulled up to his house. It was dark. No porch light on, no light coming from inside, not even a car in the driveway. I walked around quietly, calling his name, when suddenly his neighbor's porch light popped on. An older man stepped out into the light and said, what are you doing, young lady? I stopped in my tracks and rather breathlessly said, I'm looking for Josh. Uh, I think he lives here. I was his ride home and he just disappeared out of my car. I, 
I don't want to wake anybody up. Could you, could you just tell me if you saw him go inside? The man scowled at me in silence for a while, then looked away. You should be ashamed of yourself, he said, then stepped back inside and slammed the door. I was stunned and ashamed and offended. I whispered loudly towards his closed door that he had it all wrong. We hadn't been doing anything bad. It was our first date and I, I really liked him. But the porch light shut off and I knew that was my cue to go. I drove home in stunned silence. I never even got his number. The drive home was fuzzy. It felt like the car was full of Novocaine. I parked my car in the driveway, slipped in the front door, apologized to my mother, and went to bed. The next morning I woke up late, or at least I thought it was late. In my haste to get inside, I had left my phone in my car, so I really had no idea what time it was, or if my friends even knew where I had gone the night before. Good, I thought. Let them worry. They were rude. I stretched, climbed out of bed, and walked out into the living room where I found my mother sitting bolt upright on the couch. She had something urgent blaring on the TV and she was holding her hands over her mouth, her eyes wide like saucers. Mom, I said as I sat down next to her, are you okay? She didn't answer at first. She just pulled me into a hug and started to cry. After a few seconds, she said, I don't care how late you were last night, Tess. I'm just happy you're here. I looked at the television and saw that she was watching a news story about a fatal car accident. According to the newscaster, it happened last night, right by the party I was at. The camera scanned from one anchor to the other, then cut to footage of the scene. It was horrible. The newscaster said that according to witnesses, the car's tire had burst and the driver lost control. It smacked into another car, then careened off the road, rolling twice before it hit a tree and caught on fire. The car was totaled, and the two young boys who had been inside it were dead. The boys' images filled the screen, and my stomach lurched so violently that I pushed my own mother aside so I could run to the bathroom and vomit. It was Josh. The passenger in that car was Josh. A piece of his midnight blue velvet jacket still clung to the shattered windshield. I could smell his cologne in my hair like pine trees. I must be losing my mind, I thought. Maybe they got it wrong. The news does get it wrong sometimes. Maybe he did get out alive. There had to be some explanation. I ran to my room, grabbed my keys, and ran barefoot out to my car. I got in the car and sat down, grabbed my phone from the magnetic holder on the dashboard. There were dozens of texts from my friends, but I didn't care. I googled the crash. Josh Carmichael, 18, home from college for the weekend, was on his way to a party with his friend Nathan when they got into a freak accident. Both men died on impact. Services will be announced later in the week. The world around me melted. I had no idea what was real and what wasn't. My vision blurred, my stomach lurched, and suddenly I remembered the gummy. Oh no. I didn't actually know what was in that thing. I just assumed it was weed. Maybe it wasn't. Could I have made the whole thing up? Was this some kind of beautiful hallucination? It couldn't be. It was all so real. I texted Kim, ignoring all the apologies, and asked her what the hell was in that gummy? I must have seen something about the crash and fixated on his face. His wonderful, silly face. 
and then just lived the rest of the night in some kind of imaginary haze. Oh, but that can't be. It just can't. I know. I know he was there. The pine trees, the spearmint gum, the feel of his velvet jacket and his messy hair. He kissed me. I sat there spiraling for what seemed like hours, but in reality, it was probably minutes, waiting. Eventually, my phone buzzed in my lap. There was a text back from Kim, and it said, What do you mean? Nothing was in that gummy. Tess, that was a low dose of CBD just to calm your nerves. Tim thought he was being funny. That's why we all rolled our eyes. What did you think it was? I didn't know what I thought anymore. I dropped the phone and fell back against the seat. What was happening to me, I wondered. I started to slide sideways as my vision got misty. Suddenly, everything felt slippery and light. I needed an anchor. I felt as though I might float away. I did the only thing I could think of to steady myself. I jammed my hand into the crack of the passenger seat, hoping that it would keep me from sliding onto the floor, but a sharp pain brought me out of my trance instead. I pulled my hand back and saw a tiny bead of blood beginning to form on my fingertip. That's strange, I thought, and leaned over to see what had poked me. There in the crease of the passenger seat was a wilted white carnation with a safety pin through its stem. Winding through the pin's metal curves were midnight blue threads. I picked it up and pressed it to my chest, as though my heartbeat might be able to explain what was going on with its steady Morse code. It had to be real, I said out loud again. And as though it were a response, the car came to life. It seemed like I had accidentally pressed the ignition, but I knew I hadn't. The radio went from talk to static to the Everly Brothers singing All I Have to Do is Dream. I guess this song only comes on when you're in my car, I said. I never told anyone what happened that night. But sometimes, when I start up my car on cold February mornings, that song still plays. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And... We would be dead. Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Beans. Happy Valentine's Day. Yay. Aww. Love is in the air. It is love and death. Yeah. Always. Always. That's always what it is around here. So the story I wrote for the opening was actually my version of the old Resurrection Mary style legends. Uh, the most famous version other than actual Resurrection Mary is probably The Wreck, which is from the book more scary stories to tell in the dark. Ooh. One of our favorites. But, um, you know, the base story to this is much older and there's a bunch of different variations and a bunch of different things that relate. And if you came to our Campfire Stories event, you already know all about that. There you go. Right, because I took a deep dive into the backstory behind these legends, the where they came from and all the other strange and horrifying variations. And Leslie told like... 
really fucking spooky story (laughs) that relates in its own way. Speaking of which, I hope you were all able to join us for our live Campfire Stories event this past Thursday. I have no idea how that went because as of this recording, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm sure it was really fun. It was so fun. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) Like we know what we're going to do. And as far as I know, John's coming. So that's going to be fun. Yes. I hope he came. Yeah, me too. <laughs> be a bummer if he didn't. Yeah, if he didn't, I'm going to be sad. Yeah. Oh, the future's weird. It is weird because <laughs> like we're so optimistic right now. Mm-hmm. But then, you know? I yeah. Don't know. I don't know either. But you know what? It was really fun. I'm putting it out in the universe. That's what it was. Yeah, we're manifesting it. Exactly. But also it already happened. But it, that's wild. I know. That's because we don't record early ever. And we're not used to having to talk about like things in the future, but we're doing it this time and we're hopefully we'll stay ahead of ourselves. So cross your fingers, guys. Okay, so campfire stories, good times. And I'm really glad we brought them back because regardless of how this one goes in the future, Mm -hmm. um, they're so fun. They are. And I love talking to all of our fiends and being like in a room live with people. It's just great. I also feel like our campfire stories always happen you know around holidays they do so Mm -hmm. I just feel like it there's something to celebrate we need a campfire story I agree we definitely do our big one is of course going to be in March or St. Patrick's Day I don't know why St. Patrick's Day is our thing I don't know either I'm not Irish I think I am I'm quite a bit Irish Um, I think we say that every year we do for sure (laughs) um but Other than the fact that we started this podcast right before Valentine's Day, and then I guess the one that we had to prepare for first was St. Patrick's Day. I don't know, but we do make a big deal out of it every year. So we'll have our our Irish case and our St. Patrick's Day. Campfire is always super fun. So I'm I'm excited for that. That is going to be a good time. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's so much to look forward to. Mm -hmm. If you're a patron, don't forget to join us live on Thursday, the 22nd of this month. That is February. For our first official Let's Talk Docs gathering, Mm -hmm. looking forward to that, we'll be discussing The Prison Confessions of Gypsy Rose Blanchard, which is available for streaming in the Lifetime app as well as on Vudu and Amazon Prime. And we're all pretty familiar with Gypsy Rose at this point. So I have a feeling it's going to be a pretty juicy conversation. For sure, yeah. If not, go listen to our episode on it. Yeah, for sure. If you haven't caught up, you got to do it. You got to catch up. Um, And she's been, since she was released... In December, she has been living life. Yes. On social media. If you don't follow. She is not missing a beat. I'm about to see if she wants to work for us. Seriously. And she looks fucking great. Yeah. She's like got her hair done and her nails done. She's got new clothes. She's like out on the town. She's really doing it up. She grew up. She she did. Yeah. But um, I can't wait to talk about all all of the Gypsy Rose updates and and drama with our patrons. And if that sounds really fun, but you're not a patron, you're going to have to join our Patreon. Yeah, you can change that. Yeah, you can can really easily change that. And you still have time because this Mm -hmm. isn't happening till the 22nd. Also, if you're a patron, you have that much time to watch the documentary. So that's going to be really fun. Oh, and happy four-year anniversary to us. Ooh, happy four-year anniversary. I know. On the 11th, we would be dead turned four. 
Oh. Yeah, it's pretty hard to believe it's been four years since our debut no, episode. We're about to go into preschool. We are. Oh, <laughs> we have to we get to stop napping. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh. No, that's like a couple of years. I want to nap forever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, because our, our debut episode was titled Gross Love because it was a Valentine's Day drop. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Which was, of course, about Carl Tanzler and the woman he loved in death. That episode holds up, man. It's still my favorite. I, you know what? It's a lot of people's favorite. Yeah. It's the really good one. Um, it's a really bizarre case. And you can still hear me flipping through a notebook. Yeah. Because I was handwriting everything mm-hmm. at the time. I mean, like, this is a fact about me in general. I like to write things with a pen on a piece of paper. I like to journal. Right. I outline things on a pen and paper. But, like, I didn't realize at the time that that was a, not the way to go. Yeah. So. We're learning. We're that growing. not self-sustaining. No. <laughs> and think of the trees. Really? Too many. Too many. Yeah. So if you guys have been with us from that very first episode on Carl Tanzler, thank you so much for sticking around and staying with us. And if you're brand new to the pod, welcome. And thank you as well. Hey. You got a lot of fun things to listen to. And also, our people are really nice. So come hang out. Mm-hmm. Now, four years is an awfully long time. To bathe your face in blue light and horror. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid it's starting to show. It really is. I know. I have fine lines. I have discount lines. I wish I had no lines. Well. Like the men's bathroom. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was stupid. I like I it. Like it. <laughs> I didn't even have that written down. Oh. That was right off the top there of my noggin. Go. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, I have tried every remedy known to humankind to get rid of said offending fissures, but nothing so far has worked. Mm. However, I do remember hearing the legend of one magical ingredient that just might do the trick. Just a little pinch of validation. Here we're dying on. Coming in quick and country this week. Yeah. I love it. And best of all, Leslie, our fiends can get us this priceless ingredient totally free of charge. No way. How? But how? You must be asking yourself. I can tell. Well, I will tell you. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. And if you leave us a review, try not calling us two dumb twats because we're just going to like it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Two dumb twats just living their lives. <laughs> We've had a really good time with that one. I know. I think, yeah, it's definitely going to be like a spinoff pod for us or like yeah. a segment. It should be something. We ha- Two yeah. dumb twats has to be something. You guys, tell us what you think Two Dumb Twats should be. What should we do under that title? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, yeah, I mean, like, I'm not here to complain about one-star reviews. We really don't get that many. We have a couple, but every podcast does. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know which one I'm talking about, there's a post about it in our Facebook group. And uh, you can take a look. I, it made me chuckle. It really, yeah. It's supposed (laughs) to be mean. And this person is upset. And if you're listening, I don't know why you're still listening. You hated us, but a click is a click. I don't care. Um, We're sorry you hated our podcast and our politic bashing or as I read it politic bashing (laughs) yeah and as I thought it was political bashing bashing but you know I bet they meant police yeah we don't bash the police we have nothing against the police but in some of these cases some police 
don't do a great job. Mm-hmm. Not our problem. We have to talk about it sometimes. But right. some of them do a fucking great job, which we have also talked about. Mm-hmm. So, whatever. I know. They, they had to have listened. It had to have been one episode. Where we were mad at the cops. We ha- It had to be. Because they didn't do their job. You know. That episode. The one where we go the hardest is the Connecticut one. The home invasion oh, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what was that called? The, the, the Cheshire. 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 Yeah. Cheshire murders. Yeah. Listen. Not all. I don't think we've gone that hard on the police before or since, but they do not do a good job in that case. Well, and I remember in that one, it was everybody was questioning why they were just waiting outside and why they so had set long. up all these blockades. And they were like, yeah, and it the was, whole time they were out there. Yeah, they were there. Yeah, they were there on site while these people were being murdered. Yep, they just waited. They just waited. Yep. Okay, we're doing it again. (laughs) But that's more us just not understanding and they never answer why they did this. No, they don't. So like, maybe that's, uh, my brain went, that's probably what you listen to. And if that's the case, whatever. And again, I, guys, I'm not, I'm not harping on one star reviews. It's just pretty funny. So if you, if you want to go read it, go ahead. Too dumb twat. Too dumb twat. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, we're owning it. Yeah. Because we're just two dumb twats. We're just two dumb twats. I wonder if they were British. That word is a lot more widely used over there. And maybe their one star was really five stars. Maybe they're like, (laughs) they're number one. (laughs) We love dumb twats. (laughs) They really were singing like, those are two dumb twats. I love them. I love them. You never know. They're number one. (laughs) They're number one of all twats. (laughs) (laughs) If I were to rate them. So anyway, you guys, if you want to counter that one little hilarious one star we got, leave us a five star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. (laughs) Ratings and reviews equal attention. Attention equals support and support equals more and better content for all of you from two dumb twats. Yeah. But if you just can't wait for more, we would be dead in your life and who could blame you? Don't worry. You don't have to. You can support us over on... Patreon. There, for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies, some special mini-sodes, our weekly after show, Host Mortem, which is available in both video and audio formats. Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. You'll also get a special gift in the mail from us, giveaways, merch deals, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, an opportunity to talk about documentaries with us, and more. In all honesty, we are here thanks to our patrons. So come on over and be part of the We Would Be Dead family. It sounds so nice, doesn't it? And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts. Yeah. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Leave us a comment, post about your favorite episode, let us know when you're listening, tell a friend, tell a neighbor. Tell the captain of your local neighborhood watch. Sure, they're a little weird about safety and have trained themselves to sleep with one eye open, but someone had to do it. What's their name in our neighborhood? Rory. Good one. Then your friends and Rory can become fiends. And he will, he or she, because that could be anybody. It could be. We'll keep us safe and we can all hang out together. Yeah. I think that's all I have in the way of announcements and gripes, apparently. <laughs> for this week. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Um, I 
drove over here with something. Oh. I don't remember what it is. You'll remember it. Yeah. And when you do, just say it. Okay. Oh, I have an announcement. <laughs> I'll just say that. That'll just happen. Okay. <laughs> All right, then. On with the show. So, in sticking with the theme of the day, this episode is about the Valentine's Day murders, uh, which didn't happen on Valentine's Day, but uh, people like to round up, I guess. Uh, But this is referring to the murders of Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain. Mm So, without further ado, on the morning of February 13th, 1971, a nursing student studying at Watts Hospital in Durham, North Carolina, her name has never been mentioned in print, so for our purposes, we'll give her a name. Let's call her... Rhoda. Rhoda. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) A lot of real American standard names in this, and now we got Rhoda. All right. It's, It's standard. I mean, right? She's like... I would have gone for like Jennifer or Sarah or Ashley. I don't know, Rhoda. Rhoda or Rhoda. Okay. All right, Rhoda it is. She's spunky, flamboyantly fashionable. She's a young Jewish woman from New York City trying to make her own way. (laughs) She's none of those things. We don't know anything about her, to to be frank, because this particular friend never identifies herself. We have the names of some other ones, but not her. And that leads me to believe she doesn't really want it out there. So Rhoda it is. Rhoda sat nervously, wondering where her roommate could be. The curfew at their dormitory was 1 a.m. the night before. It was a Friday night, so it's later than usual. On other weekdays, it was 11.30. But um, it was also like a special night because that was the night of their Valentine's Day dance. Some people call it a dance. Some people call it a party. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter. And um, the staff wanted students to be able to enjoy themselves. And they definitely were out late. So... Rhoda's roommate was a pretty blonde named Patricia Mann, and she had gone to the dance that night with her boyfriend, a handsome athlete named Jesse McBain. And then after the dance, after they were done at the party, they went off uh, parking before she had to be back at 1 a.m., but she never returned. After 1 a.m. had come and gone, the house mother, because this is a dorm, so there's like obviously somebody who's like in charge, went and checked in with a bunch of her friends. So her roommate had, I guess, the house mother had checked in and the roommate was like, she's not back. I don't know what to tell you. The house mother was like, okay, maybe she's in somebody else's room. So she mm-hmm. went around and asked the friends. Then she was in none of their rooms, which they all <laughs> thought was strange. And so Rhoda decides, I'm going to call the police. This is not like my roommate. So maybe Ooh, maybe right. she's stranded on the side of the road. Maybe the car broke down. Right, yeah. You'd need to find them and give them a ride back, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to walk. She calls the police and the police kind of don't take her seriously. They're like, okay, it's been like an hour and a half. That doesn't really qualify as missing. Tell us later if if anything else happens, but we'll be on the lookout for people stranded on the side of the road, I guess. Bye. Then they just kind of blow her off. Rude. Totally rude. The rest of the night passes into the morning and still nothing. The sun comes up, the dorm reopens because after curfew, this dorm is on lockdown. They lock the doors. You cannot go in. You cannot go out. That is it. Some college dormitories still do this for safety's sake. Mm -hmm. So if, say, they had been parking and they lost track of time, they probably would have been back immediately in the morning. Right. And they weren't. 
So by this time, Rhoda is panicking. And she gathers up a group of hers and Patricia's friends and tells them what has happened. And they develop a plan of action. Because they're nurses. They're fucking organized. Yeah, for sure. First, they call all of the local hospitals to see if there were any car accidents the night before and anybody they couldn't identify waiting in like an emergency triage situation. Yeah. Smart. So smart. That did not happen. They had nobody under those conditions there. Okay, fine. Next, they're like, okay, we have to call her her family. We we have to. So, and this is also very responsible. These are, mind you, um, Patricia is 20 and her boyfriend, Jesse, is 19. He's like three days away from turning 20. Okay. Um, so these are not like adult adults. You're yeah. still nervous about what mm-hmm. parents might think. And they probably didn't, weren't really keen to be like, they were out messing around in a car and that they didn't even give it a second thought. They did it. So these people are doing the right things. They called parents. Parents are obviously extremely alarmed, but no, Patricia had not come home to their house that night for any reason. They hadn't heard from her either. Her parents then call other family members and other friends. No one has heard a thing from her and she isn't anywhere to be found. So with nothing to go on, the group of uh, nursing students and friends decided if nobody else is going to do it, they're going to go look for Patricia. All right. Good on them. Yeah, man. They're like doing it. So they get in the car and they know where exactly where to go to because all of the nursing students at Watts who have a significant other, and let's be real, who had a boyfriend because at that point in time, nursing students were basically all women. They all went parking at the same place. Ooh. I know. And this place is a, was like a new construction neighborhood. And this neighborhood is now called Crossdale. It's right near the Crossdale Golf Course. And the golf course is there and the country club is there, but the surrounding neighborhoods are still kind of being developed. So this place, the streets are laid out, but there's like not houses and it's just like dirt out there. Mm-hmm. So there are all these little cul-de-sacs, which basically act or like private little pockets where you could drive your car to the end of a lane and park it. And then like, you know, 15 yards later or whatever, there's another one. Oh, okay. So you just like pull in. Right. And all the nursing students had like unofficially the ones that were theirs. They're like this yeah. one. Yeah. Patricia's usually here and this is where Rhoda goes or whatever. So like people knew where she was going to go. Yeah. So they drive out to this spot and they drive through the cul-de-sacs and they find the one that Patricia normally parked at with Jesse and they pull in and there is Jesse's car. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Okay. Maybe they fell asleep in the car. Yeah. It happens. It happens. Or or they realized it was late and then they just decided to sleep in the car. Now I know it's February, but to be fair, this is a very warm February day. So it did not get freezing cold. And they could just keep each other warm. And they could just snuggle. This is a true crime podcast. So probably not. Right. Yep. So the group of friends parks their car and they walk over and the car is not running and Mm -hmm. everything is quiet. The windows are not fogged up. Someone was breathing in there all night. They probably would be. And they don't see anything in the car. They're like, okay, the car looks empty, but we can't really, let's try and get in. So they try all the handles and the car is also locked. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this seems like an impasse, right? But it's not because at the time, um, most cars have like a rear vent window. Mm-hmm. And Jesse's car was a Ford Cortina. Mm. It's a car that was only made in the United States for like five or six years. It's okay. a mid-sized car. So it does have this triangular vent window in the back. So it would be like, you know how you have the big window 
in like the back seat. And then next to it, there's like the little one on the outside. It's this one. But back then they like kind of punched in and out to open and close. And that was the one thing that wasn't locked. So they punched out the window. They didn't break it. You could like push it in and get in. And they reached their hands in. They unlocked the door. They opened the car. And nothing is amiss. Jesse and Pat's, she went by Pat sometimes. Mm. Jesse and Pat's coats are in the car. Mm. As is a box of chocolate that uh, Jesse had brought for her as a Valentine's Day gift. But he was so excited to see her earlier that he left it in the car. Oh boy. I know, cute. But that's in the car too. Right. There's no signs of a struggle. There's no note. There's no like, we, you know, broke down or ran out of gas. Just no sign that anything like that happened. It's just is what it is. And the group of friends see this and they go, oh, no, 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 no. This is not right. So they decide to call the police. Rhoda's like, okay, I called him once. I'm going to call him again. Yeah. So she goes back to the dormitory. And I think some of them stay and start looking around the area, thinking like, you know, if they did have to leave their car for whatever reason, they're pro- they probably didn't get too, too far. So Rhoda calls the police. The police go, okay, now we're going to come out. This is interesting. Mm -hmm. They drive out to the car. They look at the sites. They identify the car. They investigate a little bit. They're like, yep, that's what this is. They talk to all the friends. They take statements, but they're not very concerned. They don't seem to be taking this super seriously. And eventually they say to Rhoda, you know what? They probably just ran away and eloped. What? Yeah, that's just the like, couple's version of she probably just ran away right now the roommate's pissed when when they say this she's like i'm sorry where did you even get this idea from because first of all they were engaged but they had only just gotten engaged okay and they had decided that like they weren't going to get married until patricia graduated from school Mm -hmm. because she was very serious about nursing school and also Patricia wasn't the kind of girl that like didn't care about a wedding. She wanted a wedding. She wanted the gown. She wanted the party. She wanted to marry Jesse in front of her friends. She wouldn't have just walked away and gotten married somewhere weird. Um, There was no reason for her to do that either. Nobody opposed their marriage. It was nothing like that. Everybody was all about it. And besides, it just, it just, she just wasn't like that. It just didn't feel right, Mm -hmm. you know? So what was she like? Well, Patricia was a very sweet and rule-following girl. This comes up over and over and over again. She was very close to her family. She went to church every week. She was a good student. She worked hard. She was a good girl in general. She never even broke curfew at her home with her parents. That's just how she was. She did date a few boys, but she wasn't boy crazy. Mm -hmm. Nothing ended badly. And she just had a pretty typical upbringing. She was close with her cousins. Physically, she was short and very petite with blonde hair and brown eyes. She's very pretty. Um, She has that like flippy, very late 60s, Patty Duke, Haley oh, Mills yeah. style hair. It's really mm-hmm. cute. Uh, and she and Jesse met in high school and fell madly in love. Oh, I love that. I know they were high school sweethearts. Okay. Right. And Jesse, like it's no wonder either. Because he was like kind of a big deal. 6'2", athletic, super handsome, nice, funny, good personality. He was a wrestler and a football player. And like everybody loved him. There, You can't, nobody says anything bad about him ever. He was just that kind of guy. 
Um, and school yeah, came, they are very cute. Right? They're a very good-looking couple. School came easy to Jesse, too. He was super smart. He never really needed to study too hard. He excelled in all the sports he played. Um, and he was hardworking and dedicated and, like, generally quite a catch. Mm. But so was Patricia. So, like, this was a good couple. And they did well together throughout high school. There's some notes of, like, they broke up here and there. There was, But they were in high school. I don't... That's nothing. It is what it is. But Patricia was also very passionate about nursing. And she and her cousin Carolyn were both, who she was very close to, were both very close. And Carolyn was like, we have to apply to Watts. Watts is the best nursing school in the state. We have to go there. So they both apply and Carolyn does not get in, but she does. And at first, Patricia's like, oh, I don't think I'm going to go. You're not going to be there. And it's going to be further away from Jesse. And I don't want to leave. That's how much she loved her family and her boyfriend. Yeah. Best nursing school in the state thinks it's about not going just to stay with them. But they convince her to go. Good. I know. Go, go to nursing school. Yeah. The best Do nursing it, school. We'll still be here. Hey. Exactly. They work out a kind of long distancey situation where yet again, like, because she's at school with girls, mostly all girls, and Jesse's like super good looking. She probably had moments of jealousy and there were other women that liked him and they broke up for short periods of time and he dated here and there, but they always came back to each other. So that's, that's the two of them. They knew that they'd have to work extra hard to keep their relationship alive, but they did it. They did it. They did. They got engaged. And then they did. And like, they got engaged, I believe, shortly before this occurred. Okay. And like Jesse had asked her family and like the whole nine, she had like a pre-engagement ring on, but they hadn't gone through like the full big, like, okay. They just like said they were getting married basically. Okay. But I don't, th- she didn't have an actual like engagement ring, engagement ring. But he gave her like a promise ring that she still had cute. on. Very Well, so cute. then maybe, maybe, I mean, is it definite that they, I know this is like a little bit of an older case. Mm-hmm. So is it definite that he proposed or do you think that was like coming? According to their families, he proposed. Okay. Because he had like, they had talked about it and they were all very excited. Okay. But again, I don't, I don't know how, how many people she talked to about yeah. that just because like there was no official ring and it was, they were waiting. Yeah. So I'm not a hundred percent on that. That's why I'm saying like when the cops just assumed they went away and eloped, that was like a leap. It wasn't like, a, oh yeah, we know because this, that, and the other thing. It was the cops just trying to find a way to make this nothing they had to deal with. Yeah. Which I don't love but you know try and try and find that best case scenario I suppose so now we kind of come to the night of their disappearance right we know a little bit about each of them what the heck happened well there that night there is a party for the Watts nursing school students to celebrate Valentine's Day and they're supposed to bring their fella and a lot of places call this like a big dance but it was 50 people max and it was like just in a room in a different yeah. dorm. It's, it, wasn't, it wasn't like a big dance. Like there was not a lot of that going on. <laughs> right. No, it was probably just like a little party for their, Precisely. For their class. That is exactly what okay. it was. Because a lot of people um, that comment on this that were actually at this party are like, I don't know why everyone's talking about this big Valentine's Day dance that they went to because I... I was there and it wasn't that. Yeah. <laughs> it was very low key. And Patricia had been like, I want to go to this party. You should come to my school and we can go together. It's a, it's Valentine's Day. It's going to be great. But um, 
Jesse and his brother shared a car and it was not his day to have the car. So he said, I can't go. And she was so sad about it. Mm -hmm. Devastating. They actually argued a little bit about it. I I understand. Me too. She really wanted to go to the party with her super cute boyfriend. Of course, fiance, sorry. Of course, she was a little upset. But I know he talked to his brother and made a deal with him and switched days and did not tell her. Okay. So while she was at class, he drove to her door and he surprised her. And when she got back, he was there waiting for her. Love that. And she was like, oh my God, I'm so happy. Did you bring me chocolate? And he's like, damn. It's in the car. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, I thought that was so sweet that he was just like, surprise. Yeah, that's really sweet. (laughs) So she's excited. They get all dressed up. There is a picture of them everywhere. That is not what they were wearing that night. That is their prom picture from high school. Okay, that makes more sense. I know. that Because yeah. that's another reason I think why people have the impression that this was like a very big deal dance. Yeah. Because the picture of them everywhere is her in this like white gown looking very formal with gloves on and he's yeah. got like a white tux on and like it's very formal. Yeah. But that's not, that's not it at all. Okay. He was wearing um a, like a burgundy plaid pants and a collared shirt. Okay. And she was wearing a white and pink checked dress with green accents, a little bow at the top, and a belt. Nice. A very Rhoda situation. Told you. I mean, you're not wrong. I bet you Rhoda dressed her. It's, it's Rhoda's dress. She borrowed yeah. it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that in. That's not a fact. No. <laughs> Relax, everybody. Um, but that's what they were wearing. And um, so they get all dressed up and they meet up with friends and they go over to this big, not big party and they hang out for a little while. They're there. It's kind of slow. It's kind of beat. By 11.30, the party doesn't end at 11.30, but by 11.30, they're like, I don't want this anymore. (laughs) We want to go do something else Mm. together. Yes, yes. So Patricia tells her friends, like, we're going to leave. We're going to go parking. Like, I'll be back by curfew. <laughs> I hope that's what they say. I love it. <laughs> that's what everybody interviewed said. I know. That they were going to go parking. I love it. I mean, but that's such a, a broad term. Mm. What, Leslie, what exactly <laughs> is parking? Why don't you tell? Maybe people don't know. And maybe I have the wrong idea. Maybe it's not <laughs> what I think it is. What is parking, Leslie? Tell us. <laughs> Love to know what you think it is. Um, well, Holly, when two people fall in love. Which we've established. That happened. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they like to go parking. And that's when they're on a date in their car. And while it's parked someplace. So they do park their car. They Got do it. park, yeah. So, you know, like a drive-in, by a lake, mm. overlooking a city. Beautiful. Yeah, et Different, You know, different things. There, it's just parked somewhere okay, in front somewhere. of a house. It doesn't matter. Ew. In a parking lot. Ugh. I don't know. <laughs> I don't like, <laughs> I don't know what they're doing. Maybe that's great. <laughs> Maybe Wawa's the place to be. What are they Maybe. doing there? Maybe. Well, they're going to start petting each other. Maybe kissing each other a little, and then sometimes even consummate their love. Yeah, it's car sex. That's what I thought it was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's like neck. I mean, sometimes. Sometimes just making out. A little in the car. necking. Necking. <laughs> Why does nobody use that word anymore? I do. All the you time. do? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to look for it now. <laughs> okay. So they're going to park. 
And speaking of like weird old timey lingo about this, because they they always like to dance around this. They're not going to be like, this is a place where you go for car sex. This is where people went parking. And they call these locations lover's lanes. Mm -hmm. Very pretty way to put it. And you know what? It's, It's a name that carries with it a lot of weirdness at this point, I think. Because over the years, there have been a lot of monsters who like to terrorize the sex-obscuring dark stretches of road we call lover's lanes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I've ever heard someone refer to one when it wasn't in reference to like a murder or a killer. Or like a rape. Yeah. It's it's always awful. It's never like they went to the lover's lane and had a wonderful time and then went home. Nobody was pregnant or sad. It's like reviews. You never hear the good one. Just two dumb twats. That's right. But, you know, there are a lot of iconic monsters that are located on these lover's lanes. The Hookman, Skinned Tom, the Goatman, your uncle's shifty friend Scooter, who sometimes hides in the bushes to, quote, make sure there's no funny business going on. <laughs> oh, Scooter. Mm-hmm. All of them are equally terrifying, I yes. think. <laughs> Scooter might be the most. Now, it's easy to think that all these monsters are simply urban legends, except, except Scooter. He's probably real. There's, yeah. there's definitely a scooter somewhere that did something awful. Mark my words. Uncle Scooter. Now it's Uncle Sprand. Oh, Uncle Sprand. He's not Uncle Sprand Scooter. He hides in the bushes. <laughs> he doesn't want anything funny to go on. I don't know what he's doing in there. <laughs> I don't know who this person is, but I like her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of those monsters really seem like the perfect cautionary tale, right? Yeah. I mean, we talked in our Elf episode about how certain things are created to keep kids from doing dangerous shit. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. And these legends are just too scary to ignore, but also like a little too ridiculous to fully believe. Right. But that that isn't entirely true. I'm not saying there really is a guy with a hook or somebody who is cross-mutated with a goat out there screaming and killing people. But what I am we're saying... We're also not saying there isn't. That's true. Yeah. I can't prove that there's not. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But in reality, lover's lanes are not that safe. Right. And there have been more than a few murders, sexual assaults, and horrible things that have occurred on them, mm-hmm. which is why that's how we hear about them. So they may be just as dangerous as you think they are. Now, Leslie, maybe you can help us out here. Sure. Why don't you let us know where some of these places are? I'm being vague. I'm just saying a road in the dark. Like, right. where where are we finding them? Where, where should we not park? Oh, unless we have a danger thing. And then, wait, should we park? Yeah. <laughs> eyebrows, eyebrows. Mm. All right. Well, so, you know, I was thinking about this. And we already named a couple different mm-hmm. places, you know. but. I I was thinking more, you know, like, because I love a list. Who doesn't? So I did the 10 most likely makeout spots that a killer will likely crash. Okay. So they're going to crash your experience, not exactly. their car. Exactly. Or like parachute in. Yeah, maybe they'll crash into you. That's part of their... Maybe they'll parachute I in. I don't, I don't know. know. Yeah. So number one is Lookout Point, which is like a lover's <laughs> lane. <laughs> also the most <laughs> ambiguous name in the Just world. Lookout Point. Oh, God. Yeah. You know, there's always one, <laughs> but it's like a lover's lane kind of kind of vibe. But right? it's like on the top. That's usually in like my brain, type. the top of a, yes. like not a cliff, but like you're overlooking things. Exactly. You're up high. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. I can see it. Don't go up high. Check. Don't go up high. Under the bleachers at a high school football game. Gross. Yeah. Don't do it. No. 
No, there's someone's always going to come back there to slash you. And it's loud. Yeah. It's and loud, they're not going to hear you. They're bigger down there. Yeah. People are always like smoking pot. They're it's, bigger down there? Who's... Like the bigger, the bleachers. Oh, I'm talking about like bigger. people are bigger so, down yeah. there? Yeah. No. It's like outside. It's easy to like get to. <laughs> the under the bleachers, people are bigger than regular people. <laughs> well. <laughs> Sorry. I like that image. You just get down there. It's like yeah. giant people like. Yeah. <laughs> They reach like the top of the bleachers. <laughs> I think of the whole space, they're just square, mouth breathing. Under the bleacher, trolls are very big. <laughs> they just eat you right away. Or real, real giants. Not good. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, a cornfield. Oh, yeah. Don't. That's bad. Bad scene. <laughs> Never. You'll still, aliens might get you in a cornfield and I hate sure. aliens. There's so many things that can happen to you in a cornfield. It's so dark and hard to find your way out of. Like, don't do that. Little girl ghosts will just be staring at you. There will be child ghosts. Yeah. Everywhere. <laughs> Ew, Everywhere so you turn. <laughs> I wrote a monologue about a cornfield, yeah. although that was a, like a lady serial killer and I kind of liked her, but whatever. But see? She, she was you. killing dates out there. You have there a point. Go. That is what I had her do. Yeah. There you go. Fair. That's You're fair. Okay. The Midwest. The whole Midwest? The whole Midwest. Fair enough. <laughs> I always say serial killers are from Indiana, but yeah. you know. So Indiana's Midwest. Don't do it. <laughs> don't. Stay, don't park your car in the don't Midwest. Just keep it running. Yeah. Just keep, keep it just going. driving slowly. Do not stop. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> you can't not the whole no, time no you just roll you on through go from east to west yep and if you have something to do <laughs> circle <laughs> keep it coming that's right do not pass go no <laughs> or pass just keep passing no, go keep, keep, keep passing, passing it. go that's right that's right um and this is in the same one and or stephen king's new england oh yeah you just till maine good yeah so stay out of maine yeah. mostly yeah I feel like most of Stephen King's New England is Maine. Maine, Massachusetts. Yeah. Mostly those, I think. I've, I've parked my car in Massachusetts. I live to tell the tale. Me too. Oh, boy. We were really taking our lives in our hands. We really were. I was in Salem, though, so it's fine. Yeah. I was all over. Yeah, there you go. You um, took your life in your hands. Yeah. Ugh. Yikes. Uh, visiting your girlfriend while she's babysitting. Oh, my God. Don't. What are you doing? Yeah. Don't do that. You're, you're both going to get murdered. Yeah. Not the kid. The kid's fine. Just Every you guys. Time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which makes me think, was the kid involved? Ooh. Just saying. Anyway. A cabin in the woods. Okay. I mean, it's very tempting to go out in the middle of the woods in mm-hmm. a cabin and have sex. Yeah. It's secluded. Yeah. That's the only thing there is to do. Yeah. What else do you do? Why else there? are you there? Drugs there, and sex. I know. You, you get drunk. And then you have sex. Then the next day, maybe you hike a little. (laughs) That's it. The end. (laughs) Well, you wake up and you're like, well, we should do something. We can't just. Yeah. can't just be like heathens the whole time. No. And you need a little fresh air to help with those hangovers, you know. Yeah. Let's walk to the lookout point. Oh, no. (laughs) It's just all bad. All bad. In the Midwest. Yeah. Okay. A ski lodge by the fireplace. Oh, no. Really? That seems so nice. I know. Usually on top of like a bear rug. Never good. Ted Bundy killed a girl in a ski lodge. There you go. Oh, good. Don't do it. Okay. I'm on board. Don't do it. A closed swimming pool. Oh, no. Bad. 
Definitely no. Yeah. Definitely don't think that's a good place yeah. for sounds like It like sounds like a fun date. First of all, time. sex in water is not what you think no, it is. it's not. Chlorine will dry you right up. It will, but also like, it's not like it makes it easier. What do you, you people are not thinking science. That, right. Anyway. Anyway. Everyone's like, pool sex is hot. No, it's no. not. It's difficult and weird. Anyway, I don't. Holly, please explain. Please elaborate. I mean, I have been told this Uh by other people. I don't know anything about it. Okay. We'll talk later. Next. (laughs) Um, Any cemetery. Any. Why are you fucking in a cemetery? That's disrespectful. Just any, you know. Unless you're Mary Shelley. Mm. The only one who gets away with it. There you go. Um, And then uh, any motel that charges by the hour. Ew hour they know what's going on they don't clean in between no no they know they know what's up they do and so that was my top 10 but also really as we've learned especially from all of our horror movies Mm -hmm. just literally anywhere that you're trying to have sex yeah there's gonna be a killer yeah they're gonna be there outside of like the normal places where you're supposed to have sex i.e your own bed yeah. Or your lover's bed. Yeah. Even then, though. Even then, you might die. If you're having sex, you're going to die. It's always risky. Yeah. It's a risk that we, we have to take. <gasps> We're just real champs here. <laughs> just out here doing things in the name of love, putting our life on the line all yeah. the time. I mean, we're adults. We do not have to have car sex. But, no. you know, some people, that's how their life is. Well, thank you for that, Leslie. You're welcome. Everybody, be on the lookout. Be on the lookout. Be safe. You know. Don't go and try and have sex in those places. Yeah. Just, you know, think twice. Make sure make sure everything's good. Yeah, if you're in a cabin in the woods, just just the hike. Yeah. And then go home. Don't stay overnight. No. 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 And for God's sakes, don't go poking around looking for things. <laughs> <sighs> okay. I feel safer already. So. Back to the story. Now we're pretty much back to where we began, which is curfew comes and goes. Patricia does not come back. Her roommate calls the damn cops. The cops, um, so a little bit more about how the cops reacted that night. They did say, um, you have to wait 24 hours before reporting a missing person. And we know that that's not true. <sighs> it's not. I did not research the laws in North Carolina in 1971, which is very unlike me. I usually do. Perhaps that was a thing then, mm-hmm. but also probably not. Right. Most times when people say that they're just buying time because they think you're bullshitting them, but there is no law that says police have to wait to research them to like uh, explore a missing person. That's that is absurd. Anyway, so then it's the next morning. Everything we discussed happens. They call all around. They find the car. And now it's time for the investigation, right? Now the cops are on it, according to the cops, right? Mm-hmm. So they come out and they look at the scene. They they do formal missing persons report reports at this point. Mm-hmm. They hadn't done it before. Okay. Which I'm not surprised. They push the theory that these people have eloped, but they also do put up missing posters. So they do put out a um, bulletin and stuff. They say that they've gone missing. Because parents are involved at this point, too. And they're like, where the fuck are our kids? They're gone. Yeah. And with that, they put out a tip line. Of course, that's how you do it. And tips do start coming in like right away because crazy people love calling in with tips. Yeah. Like they fucking love it. They're like, I got a call. (laughs) 
<laughs> I swear to God, some people are just waiting. They're like, oh, I'm going to say some crazy shit. <laughs> the two tips that um, they, the police got that they put some stock in that, that first day was that a woman called in and she said that she saw that night out by the golf cart course a young couple carrying a suitcase walking into the woods. And the cops were like, there you go, walking into the woods to go get married. In the, in, yeah. in the woods, when they had a car, why are they doing that? I know. That's, the, that's the weird part. They would have left with the car. They had a car. Why are they like, yeah. we'll just walk off into nature then. Maybe they were becoming fairy folk. Maybe. Maybe they, they had a secret wedding planned in the woods yeah. and they didn't invite anybody they knew. Yeah. Of course. It sounds like something John and I would do. It does. Yeah. I'm sure it would be nice. But that's, that's, again, this is so strange. And I, just based on that, I don't know why the cops put a lot of stock in that tip because mm -hmm. it's like, okay, but there are so many details that say that's not what anyone would ever do. It's mm -hmm. just an absurd situation. But they're like, oh, there you go. See, they planned on leaving. Uh, and then um, somebody who worked at a local jewelry store said that the couple had come in and purchased wedding rings. Mm. And the cops like, See, suitcase, wedding ring, there you go. But it turned out when they did a little more exploration into this, a couple did go to that store to buy rings and they were young and they were attractive, but they weren't. Okay. Patricia and Jesse. Yeah. Because, you know, wedding rings are like a pretty substantial investment and a lot mm -hmm. of times you will have insurance on them or have to have them engraved or sides and you will have the people's name. Right. So it was pretty quick for them to be like, you mean them? Because that's not the people yeah. we're looking for. So... I mean, it just sounds like the police had, like, a idea of what happened and exactly. these stories fit it. And so they really wanted to lock yeah. on to, oh, this must be yeah, what happened. So then a couple days pass. And after a couple days pass, the cops are like, I don't think they eloped. Right. Because from everything, any kind of diligence you could possibly do on this case, these are two kids who are super wholesome and don't just drop off the face of the earth and not tell anybody anything about themselves for days. Right. Some They would have told somebody, even if they were eloping, somebody would have known. Yeah. Probably. And if they did, the next day, they'd be like, we got married. Right. They would have called. They would have reappeared. Right. Yeah. It, just, it just wasn't. It just, it stops making any sense right. after that And also, they wouldn't have just left the car. No, that's insane. You have a car. Why didn't yeah. you leave? In, and they're coats. Yeah. You walked off into the night to get married without your coat. Right. Okay. I don't, I just, I'll never understand why they thought that was a thing. But they did. And not for too, too long. But long enough, honestly, because after a couple of days, that's when they really start searching, which means they weren't really searching hard before that. Mm. And I don't like that either, because we will find out that in this case, it probably, it wouldn't have done anything. It wouldn't have helped them. But in a lot of cases, it would. Mm -hmm. A lot of cases, if you can, you know, get out searching immediately, you can prevent bad things from happening. And they didn't. And um, I know for a fact that they're Parents were not pleased about this. I mean, they were out looking. Friends were out looking. Nobody could find them. So now the cops are engaged a couple of days later. They're like, all right, we're going to look way harder than ever before because we already look really stupid. Right. So they launch an extensive search. They call on anybody local that can help them to help. They search um, the Watts Hospital. They search all around the, the nurses' dormitories. 
They searched the Crossdale Golf Course, which I mentioned had only opened five years prior. So it's not a lot going, it's pretty new. They searched the woods around the golf course. They search out by the cul-de-sacs. They search all around there. They even dredge a local lake. Yeah, so they're like hitting it hard. Yeah. But they don't find a single bit bit of evidence. Mm. There's no traces. Not only do they not find Patricia and Jesse, but it's just, just nothing. So what can one do? But I guess just keep trying. They do this for two weeks. Then, on the morning of February 25th, a break in the case occurs. A surveyor out in a remote area near Duke Forest, this is 3.9 miles from where the parking area is, on the end of a one-lane road. That's where this guy is. You go down a one-lane road through this remote area, and the only thing that's on this road and around this road are little pocket trailer communities, like little trailer parks where people live. Like there's way more of them now than there was then. So like if you look at this on Google Maps now on the street view, you're going to see a lot of trailers. They were few and far between then, but they did exist. So that's where this guy is. He's out walking around in the woods surveying. Right. What does one survey? It's like boundary lines. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Like property lines, boundary lines. So, and they like look to see if like what projects they can build and where. That makes a lot more sense. He's not out there like, okay, land. (laughs) I have a few questions to ask. You'll be compensated for your time. (laughs) No? All right. So this guy's poking. He's not working for family feud. No? All right. So (laughs) they says? (laughs) No. He's out walking around in the woods, I guess, measuring things and what have you when he sees something curious. Out in the middle of the woods next to a tree, he sees something poking up out of a pile of leaves. Then he walks towards it and he notices it looks like a mannequin's leg. Ooh, but it's not. Yeah. Is it ever a mannequin? No. It's never a mannequin. No. Mm -mm. So he walks up to it and he notices then that, first of all, it's definitely not a mannequin because it is very discolored. And second of all, when he peers down into the leaves and like brushes them a little bit, he sees that it's attached to a body. Right. Oh, no. Two, two bodies. And runs, 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 runs for his life. This guy is freaked the fuck out. He does not stick around to find out exactly what's going on. He runs to one of the trailer homes. He knocks on the door. They go, what the fuck's going on? He's like, I got to use your phone. Yeah. <laughs> Calls the damn cops. He's like, I think I found those teenagers. And the cops are like, oh, no, you found them first. Right. So they drive out to this remote location. But I guess it takes a little while because by the time the investigators get there, um, there's already a crowd. Okay. Like all the all the trailer. I guess um, people who walk who are local and this guy's yeah. freaking out. Maybe he also called maybe the trailer people are like, I'm He's, gonna call everybody I know. I know. There's like a phone line. There's a phone tree. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. But there are people <laughs> out there like walking around. Yeah. Which means that any footprints or tire tracks that might have been out there have been ruined. Right. I'm not saying that they existed. Oh, right. I'm not saying that two weeks in the elements wouldn't have obscured them anyway. But no matter what, you're not going to find them now because there's foot traffic and people people driving out there. Yeah. So that's never a good idea. And 1971 is late in the game for people to be trampling around on crime scenes, but it happened. So the police, of course, investigate a little more, and this is what they encounter. 
they see once they brush the leaves aside, because it does look like someone has like intentionally covered them with leaves. Mm -hmm. But again, it's been two weeks. So there could have been wind too. And there were, it rained a couple of times. So we don't really know. They see that it's the bodies of a young woman and a young man. They pretty quickly go, this is, this is the two people we were looking yeah. for. I mean, they do have to call um, family in and, and Patricia's father identifies the body, which I just, bodies, which I just cannot imagine how awful that is. But the police see it and they are. Now I'm going to describe this as well as I possibly can for you guys. But I need you to know that there does not exist. And I don't want to say a picture because we don't necessarily need to see pictures of these poor young people in this state. But there isn't like an illustration or a reenactment or a drawing. There's just nothing. And the language is very vague. So from what I can gather, there is in the middle of the woods, this oak tree. It is 10 inches in diameter. So the trunk is not very fat. It's like a medium-sized tree. You could easily put your arms around it. Patricia and Jesse were at one point sitting up back to back. They are bound around the waist. The rope goes mm. all the way around the tree. So they're both tied to it. Their wrists are bound with short lengths of rope and sort of complicated knots, which are located in between their hands. Then their hands are both tied to the tree, like the ropes are connected to another rope and the rope is tied around the tree. Then they each have a short length of rope tied around their neck with a knot, not a noose, just a knot. And that is hanging, not loose, but not tight. It looks as though each of them has been pulled backwards and they collapsed in that direction afterwards. So they are back to back in this tree, but flopped over towards like the way momentum would move you back, like kind of like pushed over to lay down because they're hidden in leaves, remember, so they can't be sitting up, but their waist is still tied to this tree. So this is a very awkward situation. Oh, this is so awful. It is really awful. They were clearly pulled that way, but then also kind of shoved down so people wouldn't see them and they could be obscured. Oh. But... There isn't any other visible violence done to them. They haven't been shot. They haven't been stabbed. They haven't been beaten up. Nothing like that. They're, they're just there, right? Mm. And furthermore, their clothing is intact. They have all their clothes on and their shoes. Jesse has a pack of cigarettes in his front pocket and his keys to his car are in his pants pocket. Oh. Yep. Uh, Patricia is wearing the ring he got her and a pearl bracelet and a necklace. So this is clearly not a robbery. Obviously, the car was still there, so why yeah. would it be? But, I mean, they didn't even take things. Oh, this is awful. It's really awful. And the cops are like, I don't know what happened here. So they call the medical examiner, mm -hmm. comes out, takes them to North Carolina, like the, a university hospital in Chapel Hill, right? Uh, what's interesting, too, is that the cops briefly have a dispute when the scene is discovered because this location is on the Durham Chapel Hill County line. Okay. And they're like, <laughs> surveyor. Yeah. Which one of us? It's really I funny. Think he was there. Yeah, probably. Yeah. They don't know whose business it is. Yeah. It's Durham's business, but then they go to the hospital in Chapel Hill. So whatever. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so they are then examined by Dr. Abdullah Fatah, who um you know, it's hard to find this doctor's findings, but I found one autopsy report. So oh, I can, good, good on it you. was 
so fucking hard. I'm not going to lie. So I will tell you um, what is on that in a second. And it's very pertinent. But the bigger things that they conclude are, one, they were not sexually assaulted at all. None of that exists. Mm. Two, nothing was taken off the bodies. There's no real signs of a struggle either, which is weird. Yeah. And um, three, they died like shortly after they disappeared. So it looked as though they had been apprehended early and then taken out there to immediately be killed. So it's not like they were kidnapped for a few days and then killed. It was right away. It's it's super awful. So here is what the autopsy report, and I just have Patricia's and I only have some pages, but here is what it tells us. Patricia's 20. She is 105 pounds. Little tiny lady. She has a groove mark on her neck caused by the rope. At this point in time, it is a laceration, but the medical examiner suspects that it was a bruise and has since disintegrated. And that's why it looks like that. She has a hemorrhage in the soft tissue around her hyoid bone. All of us know that that means that she was probably strangled. She has petechial hemorrhaging in the skin of her eyelids, conjunctiva, gums, and inner surfaces of acute congestion of her visceral organs. All of this leads to oxygen deprivation. Okay. And it says the probable cause of death is strangulation by ligature. Okay, we got that. It's probably the ropes, right? Then there's a bunch of details about organs and stuff that don't really bear a lot of discussing here. There are particular hemorrhages on her heart as well, uh, but all her arteries are normal. There is no injuries to most of her internal organs with the exception of her liver. Her liver has about a half inch tear in length and extended to the depth of, depth of about one inch, but there's no disease. And the doctor suspects that this was caused by a blow to the abdomen. Mm. So she has no real obvious injuries, but she it does look like she was punched really hard in the stomach. No good. Her uterus is normal. Everything is like, so she wasn't secretly pregnant. That's not a thing, um, which I guess could have been a thing too. Like if she had gotten pregnant and they needed to like take care of it or whatever, maybe they could have run away, but no, that's not what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a little uh, bruise on her forehead. She has some bruises on her legs, no fractures but there is damage on the soft tissue on the right side of her spine, just above her diaphragm, which coincides with the blow to the abdomen. So we know that that happened. Um, no injuries to her pelvis. Okay, so here's the, re- the report directly from the horse's mouth. The autopsy was begun at 11 p.m. on February 25th, 1971. The, oh, so it was 11 o'clock. They were found in the morning and they weren't brought in for a while. So they were really looking oh, at wow. them. Yeah. yeah. The body was identified as that of Patricia Ann Mann by Horace Mann and C.A. Hartley. The whole body was covered with leaves or pieces of leaves. The body was fully clothed. There was a rope tied around the neck and also a rope tying the two upper extremities at wrists. The shoes were on. Photographs of the whole body were taken before undressing the decedent. X-rays of the head and chest were taken. The following clothes were removed. A woolen dress, mainly of pale white color with check pattern of green and pink color. The dress also had a white collar and a bow of pink underneath the collar. There was a pink plastic belt at the waist. On the front of the dress, there was a pink plastic, there were pink plastic buttons, six of them. The middle left button had fallen off the dress. A blue nylon slip, a white brassiere, blue nylon pants, that's underpants, and a dark, dark blue shoes. There was a hemp rope tied tightly around the neck. 
<laughs> the podcast I listen to, which is called The Long Dance, and I'm going to give them credit later, but they, these guys really did the damn thing, and you should listen to it if you want more information. Anyway, they call this a sizzle rope. Mm. They meant sizzle, S-I-S-A-L. Okay. But I thought it was giving us the sizzle, right. and I got excited for a minute. <laughs> no, no, no. So hemp, sizzle, it's all the same thing. It's like what a is, natural what rope. What do you mean? What is sizzle? Sizzle? It's just like a natural fiber. No, what did you think they like, meant? Like sizzle, like sizzle in a pan, like oh, the sizzle. Okay. Oh, okay. I thought I was like missing like a whole move. <laughs> like, no, no. I was like, what's a sizzle rope? No, it's just, it's just the fabric. Okay. There's a rope tied tightly around the neck with the double knot right in the front of the neck. So it's not a noose. It's just a double knot. This was cut off on the left side of the neck to retain the shape of the knot. They saved it. That's important. Remember that. When the rope was removed, a thin necklace was found around the neck underneath the rope. This was removed and retained with other uh, personal effects. There was also a rope tying the two wrists. The rope passed three times around the right wrist and four times around the left wrist, and there were several knots between the two hands. The ropes were cut off at the back of each wrist and labeled. When the ropes around the wrist were removed, a pearl bracelet was found underneath the rope around the wrist on the right side and a flat silver bracelet was found on the wrist on the left side. These were removed and placed in with other personal effects. There was a ring with a small diamond on the ring finger of the left side. Your engagement finger. There was also an earring with a pearl on each earlobe. These two were collected, blah, blah, blah. The injuries were externally recorded on the body diagrams. The eyelashes on the right eye were lost. This is kind of gross. The eyes are opaque. I don't need to go into depth with that. There was bruising of the conjunctiva with several petechial hemorrhages. On the left side, the eyelashes were still present. The eyeball was soft and opaque white in color. There were several hemorrhages on the conjunctiva and bluish bruising associated with them. The nose contained a little reddish fluid. The ears were normal. The mouth contained natural teeth in good condition. Good for you. The inside of the lips was carefully examined. There were numerous petechial hemorrhage on the inner surface of both lips. This all aligns with death by strangulation, in case you were wondering. The next showed the groove by the rope that went all the way around once. In the front, on the left side, associated with the groove, there was a laceration. This probably started off as a bruise, but due to postmortem change, turned into a laceration. Three superficial puncture wounds, as noted on the body diagram, and they're like near her sternum on each side and in the middle, were noted on the chart. Now, Jesse had these two puncture wounds to the chest, a couple of them, that occurred postmortem. We don't know why. We don't know what. No one looked into with what they could have been done. Nobody explores this at all. That, that, that information just lays there. Like puncture, like a needle? like No, they're bigger than that. It looks like it would have been the size of, I, I can't, I don't know what the wounds look like. I only okay. know what the dots look like on the, um, the autopsy diagram because I do have those yeah. too, but they look like they're probably about the size of like a pen cap. Oh, okay. They don't look tiny, right? but I mean, I don't, I can't so really take like bullets. Or no, no, no. Because they're like superficial. They're just like little oh, puncture yeah. wounds. And at first I thought like, well, her button was missing. Did she fall on something? But they both have them. Yeah. And they're not in the button spot. Okay. So I don't know. And that that's all that is said about that. I, I feel like it bears exploring, but it was never explored. Anyway. So then let's see, what else do we have? Her fingers were blue. Her nails were dark. The lower extremities are 
showed a bunch of superficial abrasions, which were probably post-mortem by bugs. Her skin, other than that, they were recognizable and pretty much intact. Four purplish bruises on the inner side of the knee on the left lower extremity. There was also one dark blue bruise about three quarters inch in diameter on the outside of the middle of the left thigh. These were recorded in the body diagram. Also, I think that's interesting, although maybe they could have been caused by being forced to the ground. I don't really know. Um, then there's the diagrams, which I we already talked about. Top screens are negative. They don't even have alcohol in their systems. Nothing. Oh, wow. Yep. Totally sober. And um, that's that's all we know. And that's that's the most you're going to know because those autopsy reports are very hard to find. It So it's been over two weeks since they found the bodies. Would they have any like alcohol in their system at that point? Two um, weeks? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Alcohol hangs around for a little. I I did this in another case where we talk about how long you can tell if the person yeah, has had anything forget. to drink. But um, at a substantial amounts of alcohol. The, if anything, you produce more alcohol while decomposing. Oh, okay. So if anything, your alcohol consumption will be fake in the positive direction, not mm. the negative. As far as far as I can remember, but like they just they didn't they were clearly like sober. They weren't doing anything mm. because like. Nobody said this, but just knowing investigations as we both do, that's the next thing people will say. Oh, maybe they got really drunk and they didn't know what they were doing and they mm-hmm. wandered off into the woods and did this kinky thing with ropes and then they died. No. No. That's Thankfully, no one happened. said that. But yeah, uh, stranger things have been speculated about people. So yeah. just to put it out there, their talk screens are totally negative. They okay. did not intake anything. Also, that means their killer didn't drug them. Right. Which is pretty evident. and. And here's why. The other very interesting thing about this is that their cause of death was strangulation, but it didn't happen right away. They had been strangled and then revived and then strangled and then revived. (gasps) Repeat, repeat. And then one time they just died. So somebody sat out there with these two people with this short length of rope around their necks sat on the opposite side of the tree of the person they wanted to pull, grabbed the tail of the rope using the tree as a brace and pulled it tight until they passed out. And then they walked around the tree and they did it to the other one. And they did it over and over and over. And eventually they ended up dying. Now, the medical examiner suspects that there were two people out there doing this to them. Because... That's labor intensive for one person, you know? And I don't discredit this. I'm not sure there weren't two people out there. We don't look for two people. But again, the ME at the time was like, this is not one. I don't think this is one person. I think this is two. Right. But we we don't know that at all. We only know that that's what happened to them. From all the evidence they have, the police then develop a likely scenario. So what they think happened is they're out there parking, doing their thing, and a car comes up, either impersonating a police officer, containing someone they knew, or an authority figure gets out and has them exit the car. Then they put them in their vehicle, drive them out into the woods, tie them up, and do this horrible thing to them. The reason they think it's an authority figure, friend, or police officer, and the police officer impersonation is probably the most likely, is because they just walked out of the car. 
Yeah. They just exited the car and they locked the door and they walked away with these people. They didn't, they weren't, there's no signs of force on their bodies or in the car or in the area. Mm-hmm. And so it had to be something like that. Now, some people speculate that they were probably hidden in the trunk of a car or something and then driven out there. But another interesting detail is that Jesse's car had been completely wiped clean. There were no fingerprints on anything, including his or Patricia's, oh. which means that was purposeful. So some people speculate that the assailant drove their car out into the woods and and then then cleaned it all up and brought it back. So if people had driven by that parking spot at night, they wouldn't have seen Jesse's car and it would have been another car. Nobody did, but just, just something to put out into the world. So that's what the cops think happened. They're like, well, somebody had to have gotten them out of the car and it had to have been willingly. Fair. But then they would have had to, so, but his keys were in Jesse's pocket. Yep. So they would have had had to come back and put them back back. in his pocket. You don't don't want to. like this case anymore. Uh, We just end it. (laughs) I'm so scared. It's it's almost ended. (laughs) So the cops are thinking, well, who could this possibly be? Because they have no suspects. There's nobody, they don't have any enemies. There's nobody who like wanted one of them and was mad about it or something. It It just doesn't exist. So they're like, all right, well, what can we discount? Not a robbery, not a sexual assault. And it's a a tortury strangulation. Yeah. Which means whoever did this was mad at them. Because as we all know, that if you suffocate or strangle somebody, it takes a long ass time. And they took their time before actually killing them. So they wanted to watch these people suffer. Yeah. This is a sick fuck. I I mean... They're either mad or like they get some sort of. But they get off on it, right? Yeah. Or they're like a power trip person. This is this is power. You want to feel like God when you're doing that. Yeah. Oh. So they don't they don't really know who they're looking for at this point. They think, uh, okay, well, let's talk to some people. They talk to a psychic medium, and then they go to um, a. Well, I'll just read you the article. They seek the help of Dr. James A. Brussel of New York City, a crime psychiatrist who aided police in the Boston Strangler killings in 1964 and New York's mad bomber explosions in 1965. Smart. Okay. Detective Bowers, who's the lead detective on this case, says that he spent five hours with uh, Brussel last week in the doctor's New York apartment discussing the slayings of Miss Patricia Mann and her boyfriend, Jesse McBain, whose bodies were found. We know, we know, we know. Russell said the killer was probably an athletic man between 25 and 40 years old, a paranoid person who was, quote, out to cleanse the world. The detective also said the psychiatrist thought that it was a grudge slang, that the killer was a longer, uh, a neat, was longer? I don't know what that means. Was a neat and precise man with an average or above average education. Okay, so he's probably clean-shaven, might have a criminal record, has an excellent work record, does not wear flashy clothes. He appears to conduct himself properly and may have suffered from childhood rejection by his mother. He also likely considers himself to be above other people, and, and so he's capable of judging them and doing so harshly. Bowers also said that Brussel felt the killer acted alone, so here's where we get that, and he would have taken no unnecessary risks this is also probably a person who knew this neighborhood where the slaying occurred because it's not neither places nor the parking spot or the place where they were found is anything you would know about if you didn't live there. Right. 
I don't know why this guy really thinks he acted alone. He says because he wouldn't take any unnecessary risks. Fine. Um, but the cops went gospel alone. And they don't consider like more than one person ever again. I'm sure they have their reasons or maybe they don't, but that's that's what we're going on here. Okay. Also, here's the thing. Profiling has been proven to not be totally accurate. It's a, it's a good way to kind of like suss out where to go or who to explore when you don't have any leads. But it's not like diehard accuracy always. Yeah. So, and there were leads. Cops explored leads, but they never talk about it. They never make any of this available to the public. And many, many, many years pass. In 2012, they reopened the case, but they don't release any information to the public. Mm. We just know that the cops did some stuff. Then, last year, that is when uh, the, the, the Long Dance podcast is released. The people who are responsible for the Long Dance podcast are Eric Pruitt, Drew Adamek, and Piper Kessler. So Eric and Drew are the people who host it. And they are the ones that um, have worked with the family and the, the Durham police and all the detectives and everybody to try and solve this case. And they are the only other people who have ever seen the case files. Hmm. And they find in one of the boxes, there is a list of suspects. Oh, okay. Like definite suspects with yeah. names, not just a maybe this happened. Right. Okay. So they were doing more than mm -hmm. what we. They were doing they things, were. right? Yeah. They just didn't talk about it. Okay. Which is which is normal if they like don't want too much. Out sure. There. Absolutely. I mean, after forty some odd years. I know. Yeah. yeah. But you know what? There's here's the thing. These are suspects. They're I guess that they would actually be called people of interest because they've never been arrested. Mm -hmm. They weren't even questioned. Oh. Only one of them. Well, two of them are formally questioned. And only one of them was only questioned in, after 2011. So mm. it's wild. And only one of them is still alive. Mm. So here are our suspects. First, let me get this out of the way. There are a lot of internet people who, uh, and people who submitted tips that think it's either the Zodiac killer or the Golden State killer. Um, the Zodiacs, I get why they thought that because this is like a lover's land killing and it's a couple and a car and the Zodiac killer did that. But this, the methodology isn't right. The Zodiac wasn't a torturer. Um, they shot or stabbed their victims and got right to the punch. And furthermore, he has no confirmed presence in or around North Carolina. So I don't know. Okay. And the Golden State Killer was a lurker. And sometimes he killed and raped women with their, their partners right in the next room. So I get where you would get the connection there too. But he also sexually assaulted like every single woman he killed. And he was also only operational in California. So it's neither one of them. Okay. A lot of people love to make that connection, but no. Mm -hmm. I think there's a third serial killer that people tried to blame it on too, but it's not. So let's return to the fact like what the cops were looking for. They always thought that it was someone who they knew or someone in a position of power, maybe pretending to be a cop. But the notes also say they thought it was probably a doctor at Watts Hospital, which is yikes. And they didn't ever announce that either. They're like, yeah, it was, it was probably a doctor. So here are our suspects. The first is a man named James Brannon Ray. Let me just warn you, two of them are named James. So they usually call this one Jimmy. The first suspect, um, this guy comes from a tip given to them by an anonymous informant. So remember, they got all those tips. There are people like, I want to tell you stuff. This one called the Durham Police Department and said they knew a man 
who has been collecting every newspaper article and interview about the murders of Patricia and Jesse, clipping them out and like keeping them in their living room, which is wild behavior. Yeah. Um, and like pinning them up like he had them all. This man also had a rope just like the one that was used in the crime in his car. And he routinely used a flashing red and blue light to impersonate a police officer and pull people over, which is exactly what they think happened. This dude also has a criminal record, mostly for stealing cars. And so they had a reason to like go to his house and inspect his house. And when they did so, the investigator that was working on his car theft case found a wig, two pistols that fired blanks, no real bullets, but threatening looking, right? A police badge. Why do you have a police badge? And keys. And the keys were to two lockers in Ward K at Watts Hospital. Do you know who worked in Ward K at Watts Hospital? Patricia did. Oh, man. Yeah. So this is not looking good for James Brandon Ray. Just a little bit about uh, James. He started stealing cars at 15. So he had a record going way far back. His father took his own life at an early age. So, you know, he has kind of a tragic upbringing. He went to jail for stealing cars several times. And um, when he was let let out from jail on probation, he like never minded his probation. He was just fucking reckless. He also had a ton of girlfriends. He like women loved him. I don't know why they just did. And he was married. So he had those at the same time. Oh, wow. Yeah, not great. And he also had a baby son. Or great for him, you know? Yeah. Mm. And he couldn't hold down a job. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's busy. He's, he's very busy. Not a lot of women. He really is very busy. Um, but here's the real incriminating thing about James Brandon Ray. It's this story. And this story is well documented. On February 10th, so two days before the killing, he visits a neighbor in a, who ran a roofing business. He goes to this guy's door and says, my car got stuck in a ditch. Can I borrow a rope? And on this guy's shelf is a brand new in the package, um, like hemp rope. Okay. And the guy's like, no, that's not going to pull a car. It will break. Go move along, Jimmy Ray. And he's like, I really want that rope. So a few hours later, he comes back and the roofer's not there. It's just his son. He's like, hey, can I have that rope? I got to pull my car out of the ditch. And his son's like, go away. But when he turns around, Jimmy Ray steals the rope. Oh, man. Right. And he makes off with it, right? So he tries to take his car out of the dish with this rope. Rope breaks in half. Right. Because, right. like, it was always going to break in half. Yeah. But he now has the rope in his car. Mm. And it's already broken. And it looks just like the one used in the crime. And so the police bring him in. And they're like, they hear this story. They're like, okay, so what is this? And they pull out the rope that was used in the crime. And he says, quote, you found it. You found my rope. Ew. And the cops are like, oh boy, you killed those people, right? You know, and they can't link this kind of rope to anyone else. It's not used in a trade commonly. It's mm-hmm. not like, oh, that's clearly a grave digger's rope or something. It's just a, it's just a home improvement thing. Everybody could have it. They sell, sell it at the hardware store. But the other incriminating thing about Jimmy Ray is that right before, right after the bodies were discovered, he sold his car immediately. Mm-hmm. He's like, got to get rid of that. Um, and he drove an old black and white Chrysler, which looks just like a fucking cop car. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, And at this time, he was also, I told you he was cheating on his wife. He's cheating on his wife with six women. Yeah. All of them who confirm this story. All of them who confirm he was spending the nights with them so he did not come home at night very often. 
So his wife, who said like, yeah, he wasn't home a lot, couldn't really pin down where he was ever. Right. Also, he seemed to know like way too much about this crime and he liked to talk. So when he sold his car, he sat and talked with the person who bought his car about all kinds of fucked up stuff, because why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Like, he was like, hey, let's talk about those, that couple that got killed. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, I heard the rope was cut into foot-long segments, which it was. I, ter- I heard these kind of knots were tied uh, between their hands, and, and he was right. He also mentioned a call that was made to Patricia's mom. Now, this was like one of those horrible prank calls yeah. where they're like, I know who did it or whatever. Oh. Yeah, they're terrible. And they happen to Jesse's parents too, but they happen every time a crime occurs. But that wasn't widely talked about. He also said that he knew Patricia because he was taking classes at Watts. He was working there as a uh, nurse's assistant and taking classes. And he said that Patricia wasn't as innocent as people like to say she was. Mm-hmm. She was cheating on Jesse with other boys all the time. And he didn't wonder why because Jesse was a total asshole. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, But then his wife was like, what the fuck, man? And he was like, I don't know that girl at all. I didn't, I never saw her ever one time. Um, I just saw a lot of articles on the news about them. And clearly he read a lot about them. So he would know every available detail. But he also told his wife that he joined in on the search parties to find them. He was like, I was out in the woods looking. There's no way. I came really close one time, actually. Like we were right by where they were found. And then they called us in for lunch. And then he decided he like really liked this lie and that he was going to go further with it. So he told... And this is all documented by his six girlfriends. He told them all different versions of this. He's like, I'm a rescue worker. That's why I have the flashing light and the nightstick and the police radio and the yellow police raincoat. No. Yeah, not to impersonate a police officer because he's a rescue worker, which he's not. Okay. He also then tells a few of these women that Patricia is his ex-girlfriend. He's like, oh yeah, we dated for a while. She always had the hots for me because we worked together. Okay, we'll get back to that. He didn't, he didn't date her, but we'll get back to that. But he did have some of what of an alibi, okay? And this is also confirmed. That night, he went on a date with a girl named Laverne, one of the six. Mm-hmm. And she had an 11 o'clock curfew. So they were out until 11. Then he dropped her off. And then at midnight, he showed up at Laverne's brother's house saying that his car ran out of gas out by the Crossdale Golf Course. And he needed to be driven to the gas station and also borrow a gas can and also borrow some money. Yeah. So the brother takes him and he goes, just go through the back roads by the golf course. And his car was parked out on those cul-de-sacs. Right. So he was out there 100% without a doubt, he was out there. Now, something he also liked to do was put that light on and like scare people who were fucking around in cars and drive away. He's done it before with other people, but that's not what he said he was doing. His car's out there out of gas. This is okay. Go on. Also, when the brother, Laverne's brother, who got him the gas, drops him off by his car, he doesn't let the brother get close to his car. He's like, just leave me here. You don't have to come. to. I can do it myself. I, I don't need your help. Why is this guy just a suspect? Well. Okay. The brother also goes on to speculate years later, like, maybe he didn't want me to go near his car because they were, like, screaming in the trunk of it or yeah. something. He just puts the gas in the car and drives away. Oh, man. Yeah. So. The brother remembers that he drops Jimmy Wright off at his car at the Cross Keys parking lot at 1230. So there is clearly a hole in this guy's whereabouts. And that's the time where they would have been there. Mm -hmm. But we don't really know. We also know that his mother lived right by where the bodies were found and that Jimmy often spent the night at her house. So Mm -hmm. he was very familiar with that area too. Okay. 
But why would he do it? Like, why is this guy doing this? First of all, um, he was an orderly at Watts Hospital, not a nursing student or assistant, and he certainly wasn't taking classes, and he never dated Patricia, and they weren't even friends. In fact, he harassed the shit out of her while she was there. He saw her. He knew who she was, but he was frequently, like, taunting her or insulting her or following her around, which she didn't like at all. And then in January, he was fired from Watts, and some people speculate that he was fired because she reported him so many times, but really he was fired because he stopped showing up to work. Okay. Uh, which will do it. So Jimmy was questioned and investigated by police at this point in time, right? And they find his car that he sold and there's no evidence in it. There's no fibers, there's no rope, there's no hairs, there's no scratch marks, there's no blood, there's no nothing. And there's, there's the fact that Jimmy really likes to lie. He likes to make up that he was a big deal and he has no record of violence. So after the investigated investigation ends, they just kind of have to let him go. They don't have probable cause. Some cops kept kicks themselves for that to this day and some really don't yeah. think it was him. So after he, he gets let go, right, he, he like leaves the state and he can't hold a job down anywhere else. He gets, erased, he gets arrested a few times for stealing cars. He gets put in jail and breaks out of jail oh, several wow. times. I know. So now he's on the run, which means he assumes a bunch of fake identities. He also has like a ton of aliases and he travels around. Briefly, he decides to come back to Durham which is dumb as shit, but he does, they can't arrest him there, you mm-hmm. know? And while he's there, he works for a doctor in a lab and the doctor's name is Robert Carl Britt. Ultimately, Dr. Britt fires him from that job for stealing a hammer because he loves to steal mm-hmm. and because he thinks he was not conducting urinalysis properly. So then he's like, goes back on the, on the move, stealing shit and getting arrested. Eventually, he finds work as a carny with a traveling carnival where he meets a woman who was a ride operator and falls in love. Oh, wow. They travel with the carnival for a bunch of years. In 2005, they get married and decide to move back in their golden years to North Carolina in 2008. And Jimmy Ray died a faithfully married man on the right side of the law in North Carolina in 2009. Holy shit. That's all we have. That's all the Jimmy Ray we Jimmy got. But don't forget him. The next one is my favorite because he's the weirdest. Mm. And actually, he's my my money's on this guy. Oh, really? Yep, not the last one. And, and everybody else's money is on the last one. Mine's on this one. And this is Dr. Stephen James Walter Wilson. Whoo, that's too many first names to be completely innocent. He sure. definitely did something wrong. <laughs> so there's, there's, an, all, there's another James in our story. And also there is another Dr. James Wilson in Durham during this time. And he really hated being mixed up in this shit because he was a yeah. lovely well-respected man. So we're going to call this guy Jim Steve Walt. This man is so much, it's hard to even know where to begin. First, we know that the police heavily suspected doctor, but there's a lot of those about considering it's a teaching hospital town. So how do we narrow it down? Okay, let's do proximity, right? Okay. Yeah. Turns out Dr. Wilson, Jim Jim Steve Walt, lived... um, a quarter of a mile away from where the bodies were found, which would mean he's familiar with the area and how frequently it was traveled. And at the very least, he's worth looking into, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure, right. So let's start with an alibi. Where was he on the night in question? Well, it's hard to say for sure because the police never asked him. Apparently, they talked to people who knew him afterwards, though, and he was supposed to be at a dinner party at that night at the home of another doctor he was friends with. Now, according to this other doctor... Jim, what do I call him? Jim Steve Walt didn't show up until after midnight, which is not when he was supposed to show up. 
At which point he spent the rest of the night rambling and looking shifty over his shoulder, looking out the window and pacing around. Not a great look, Jim Steve Walt. To add insult to injury, the bodies were disco- when the bodies were discovered, Jim Steve Walt wanted to see the tree where they were found. So he got a friend together with him. He's like, let's go. And they go out to this place. They walk out to the tree because enough people have walked out there where everybody knows where it is. And he starts saying weird shit, like real weird shit to this guy. He's looking around going like, oh yeah, I heard they were right here. I heard they were tied up. I heard this happen. Oh man, if these trees could talk. If these trees could talk. Hate that. Yeah. According to the friend, he just seemed like he knew too much. Okay. So the friend's the one that... Yeah. Talked to the police. So, but being weird and unforgivably late doesn't make someone a murderer because if it did, I'd be in jail. So why else would Jim Steve Walt be on the Durham police's radar? Um, Well, his record wasn't really clean. First, he was an unforgivable misogynist, so firmly grounded in the man, the he-man woman haters club, that there are several published pieces of proof that anyone in their right mind would be ashamed of. Mm. One of which is a textbook he worked on for a man named R. Frederick Becker called The Anatomical Basis of Medical Practice, which is to date the craziest thing that was intended to be taken seriously that I have ever seen in my life. Look it up. The the Anatomical Basis of Medical Practice. Just, you'll find it. It looks like it should be satire, but it isn't. It is an anatomy book written by horny white male med students for horny white male med students. And I don't know if you've ever met one of those, but they don't need their own book. They're fine. (laughs) What is it again? The, sorry, the anatomical basis of medical practice. You got to find one for sale. It's going to be really expensive and there aren't a lot. I think it's an Amazon link. About that book. All the anatomical models were replaced with, and I shit you not, photos of naked female models in attractive poses taken by a photographer who usually shot centerfolds for Playboy and its shows. Oh my God, this is wild. Yep. The text has a very casual bachelor party swinging tone to it and suggests basically that these doctors should study by feeling up their dates. Like a really good way to find anatomy is to do it with somebody you're fooling around with. Winkity wink, eyebrows, eyebrows. And that their whole career is really just going to be a series of opportunities to touch hot girls' butts. Wow. Yep. Needless to say, this was met with a lot of criticism by every woman who got their hands on it, uh, as specifically very prominent feminists of the time. So it was pretty quickly taken out of print. You can still get yourself a copy if you yeah. want to pay 500 bucks. And we'll put it, we'll, we'll make sure you guys can see it. As you can imagine, Jim Steve Walt didn't love that people took his book out of print and decided to respond publicly in an open letter that suggests all women are babies and his book is awesome. There you go. Great. Then he went on to threaten the woman who got the book taken out of print. He threatened her life. He's like, I'm going to fucking kill you. Cool. But that's not surprising because Jim Steve Wall threatened women's lives with violence all the time. In fact, at Duke University, where he received his MD, he threatened a couple female students in a parking lot that he was going to kill them because they didn't want to date him. Oh, man. And then he did the same thing to the woman who was the head of the anatomy department because she didn't like his dumb book. That one got him locked up in the psych ward, though. Which begs the question, why the fuck wasn't he thrown in jail? Yeah. Why are we putting him in a psychiatric hospital? Oh, because he probably was like a white male doctor. Mm. So, 
while he's in the psych ward, he's not there for long because he talks to a psychiatrist and he's like, listen, 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 listen. I found Jesus. It's fine. Let me out. And the doctor's like, that sounds like a good idea. You can go. So after finding Jesus in the mental institution, which should be the premise of somebody's book, he got out and, um, oh, I forgot to tell you, he was married at this point and he had children. Still trying to bone other women and threatening to kill them all, but he's married. But when he got out, he went right home and beat the shit out of his wife with a hot kettle he pulled off the stove in front of their two young sons. Oh my God. Yeah, they were like, you gotta go back to the, the psych ward now, bye. Not jail, the psych ward. Beat her with a hot, a boiling hot kettle. Wow. But back to the hospital. But wait, there's more. Jim Steve Walt was married twice. And in 1976, he got mad at his second wife and locked himself in the house with her young son. It took the police hostage negotiators five hours to get him to come out with the kid. Wow. This is not his son. It's her son. So it's his stepson. Yeah. So put him in jail now. Yeah. No, of course not. He said he was being weird because he was drunk. It's fine. And the cops were like, oh, you're drunk. It's fine. Doctor. (laughs) Whatever. Cool beans. As you were, Jim Steve Walt. And what do all these women have in common, by the way? All the women he's threatening and dating and doing shitty things to? They're all blonde. He loved blondes and hated all other forms of woman. Huh. What was Patricia? Blonde. Yep. According to some, uh, Jim Steve Walt was teaching a class in respiratory therapy at Watts where he met a lovely blonde named Patricia and was very taken with her. And he tried to date her. He came on to her a great many times, but she rejected him because one, he was much older than her. And two, she had a very attractive boyfriend. Right. He did not like that. And apparently even tried to get her thrown out of school. Now, this seems like a slam dunk, doesn't it? Like, it seems really obvious. The problem is that he also uh, apparently did a lot of other things. According to some, he was involved in the death of a woman named Betty Gail Brown, who was strangled in her car with her own bra strap in October of 1961, which would line up. Strangled, car, fit. He also claimed to have been questioned by the police in this crime, but was released. He also claimed to have been in New York during 9-11, wherein he went on the ground and helped survivors. He also said he was involved in the murders of several different local women, too, and several other highly publicized crimes and catastrophes. The problem was there is no hard evidence that he was ever involved or near any of those things. Hmm. The reason Jim Steve Walt was always taken to the psych ward was probably because that's where he needed to be. He was known to be a pathological liar, but again, this is the 60s. But more than that, his family, all of whom he was estranged from at this point in time, believed very strongly that he was an, uh, had undiagnosed schizophrenia. Mm, yeah. They say that he was brilliant but very dangerously delusional and that nearly all the things Jim Steve Walt did were due to hallucinations and violent paranoia. And this was the 60s, so we're not really going to try and treat him too hard. Now, the domestic violence incidents with his wives and the other blonde women as well as the strange death threats and um, that awful textbooks, those are all real. That's all documented. But the rest, including meeting Patricia Mann, they all seem to be lies. Yeah. He didn't really have her in class, according to anyone. We can't even find a record of him teaching that class there. I wish I could tell you that Jim Steve Walt received treatment later in life and confirmed that he made all that shit up, but he didn't. He simply retired to an apartment where he lived alone and eventually died. So is Jim Steve Walt the guy we're looking for? We can't really say for sure. 
He lied about knowing Patricia, but also he was close by, monumentally unstable, and had a long history of violence against specifically blonde women. The one thing that might take me away from this theory is that he was said to arrive at the dinner party, quote, after midnight, which the way it's phrased to me would seem like it meant 12 something, right? You don't say after midnight and mean 1.30. You usually mean like 12.15, 12.45, whatever. Now this would mean, because Jesse and Patricia left her dorm at 11.30, so in order for Jim Steve Walt to have done this, he would have had to have abducted them, taken them to the woods, tied them to the tree, tortured them, strangled them, covered them with leaves, wiped down the car, and made it back to his friend's house in about an hour, which is cutting it real close. But I guess it's possible. Yeah. Right? A lot of people also point to the fact that they're curious as to why the car was wiped down if the person wasn't in it, because why would you need to wipe your fingerprints off the inside of a car if you weren't in it? So... Anyway, just food for thought. Okay. The last one, the one that people are all hanging their hats on, is a man named Dr. Robert Carl Britt. Now, if you want the full skinny on this guy, I urge you to listen to the long dance because they go they go hard into every description of, of why, all the evidence against him. But here's the thing. A lot of them are firsthand accounts and they can't be confirmed. Mm-hmm. So to us, this is not really substantial evidence. Here's what we can say for sure. On January 12th, 1995, this is a long time after, mm-hmm. a woman named Susan Higginbotham. Oh, yay. Yeah. Is harassed on the, by, by a fellow driver and like bullied into the side of the road where she gets out of her car and is like, has the shit beat out of her by a man named Dr. Robert Carl Britt, who didn't like how he was driving. So he pushed her off the road, called her a feminist bitch, then knocked her to the ground and beat the shit out of her with his shoe. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Bob Carl here said that, um, it was taken to court for this. this. So this is all documented. And in court, they're like, so what happened? He was like, well, we were yelling at each other and we both pulled over and then she got out of the car and she came at me like a ninja. She is a martial arts expert and I was just defending myself. What? And everyone's like, <laughs> what? Because yeah. this woman is beat to shit, right? And there's yeah. pictures of her looking terrible. And then he's just like, hi. Wow. She grabbed him by the tie and like tried to get him off her. But like yeah. he was, uh, nothing happened to him. So the the judge is like, uh, n- no, no, no. Yeah. No, you're, you're convicted of a slap on the wrist offense, not like the assault that he should have been convicted of. Um, and at that point, his medical license is revoked, but the medical board reviews his case again three years later and said, you know what? This is a mutual assault. We're going to give you your license back. Oh, man. It was never a mutual assault. I know. Did you just decide the judge was wrong? Ugh, yeah. Old times were so wild. This is the 90s. Oh, the ni- oh my God. This is 1998 that review happened. <sighs> I know. Horrible. I know. I know. I, I'm always tempted to go, well, it was the 60s. It wasn't. <laughs> I know. So he goes back to practicing in Durham. He also has on his medic, on his uh, police record that he got a speeding ticket where it turned into resisting arrest because they pulled him over and gave him a speeding ticket. He got real fucking mad and started fighting yeah. the cop because this guy has a hair trigger of a temper. He has a record for breaking and entering in a car as a kid. He assaulted someone at a racket and swim club in 2000, which he was like older at this point, but okay. So he's documented to have a violent and out of control temper. And he's also very entitled because in the town in which he grew up, his family is very wealthy and influential and um, like everything's named after them. Mm, Okay. You know how in Cape May, there's like three families where everything's named after them? It's that. 
So he has this sense of entitlement. He's also good looking. He's also comes from money. He also has this education. He fits the profile. He looks, he thinks he's better than everyone else. He's mad. He was also athletic. He did well in school. He played football. He was valedictorian of his high school and an Eagle Scout and a Sea Scout. Oh, what's that? I wonder, as I've never heard about it before. I don't know. I mean, a Boy Scout is a boy and a Girl Scout is a girl. Is a Sea Scout an ocean? I don't. Are they mermaids? Maybe. He's a mermaid scout. Is it like Navy stuff, maybe? I don't, I, that's maybe what I thought. I just thought like, it. I just never heard about yeah. it before, but apparently he a did. Pirate? He's a pirate. Whatever the top level of that is equivalent to Eagle Scout. So I guess maybe like Shark Scout or whatever it is. He's that too. Okay. So he like does stuff fully. But he was kind of a fucking menace. Yeah. At one of the first medical practices that he worked at, he just fucking terrorized his coworkers. He frequently flashed a gun that he carried in the pocket of his white lab coat. You can't do that. Well, I guess he can. Guess he can. He also is known to like pop their tires and vandalize their property. He's just a douchebag for no reason. Why? And he would flash he this gun to menace people. Wild. Oh, like you said, he was like from an influential family. Yeah. And I mean, let me tell you something. Confidence takes you a long way. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't report him. He also sexually harassed a ton of nurses and they did not report him for a long time. Yeah. And when they finally did, he just got a slap on the wrist. Gross. Also, when you go to a Facebook group about the people that studied at Watts, they have a lot of nasty shit to say about this guy. They did not care for him. So many nursing students were like, that guy was a fucking nightmare. And I'm so glad they're finally saying his name. Right. That's a comment that's mentioned like six times. Oh, okay. I'm glad people are finally saying it because this guy definitely did this shit. Right. So a lot of people really, really think that it's him. He also has another real weird incident on his police record. So but actually, it's not on his record. An investigator talks about this. I'll tell you what happened. So out in the wilds of the 70s, hitchhiking was super common. And there's a group of kids that are hitchhiking on the side of the road. And um, they're getting pissed off because no one's picking them up and it's cold. And so they got to start flipping off cars because mm -hmm. they're kids. Kids do dumb shit all the time. But one car does not like this at all. And he pulls over to the side of the road, screeching his tires to a halt, gets out of the car, runs over to the kid, takes out a gun, put, points the gun at the kid and says, I'm a cop, get in the car. And the kids are like, no, because they're bad kids. Not, not their first time hanging like with a run in with a cop. Yeah. And the cop says, put your hands against the wall and cuffs you or they talk to you. They don't tell you get in the car and they sure as shit don't point their gun at you. Right. Yeah. So there's two kids. The one behind the kid who's talking to him pulls out a big fucking knife. Yeah. And the kid in front walks closer to him. So the man's hand is extended holding the gun. The kid walks past the gun and in between the guy and the gun. So in order to shoot him, he'd have to like suck his hand back yeah. up. This is a very bold move. And the guy with the gun is like, I gotta go. Gets back in his car once he sees he's not in control of the situation and drives away. Yeah. And they're like fucking heated about this. So they, they walk to, I guess, like a diner or something that yeah. they find. And they go in there, they're like, they memorize his license plate, first of all, mm -hmm. or they write it down. They can't remember which one, but they know his license plate. They call the cops. They say, we want to report an officer. He drives a Pontiac. I think he might've been undercover or something. This is his license plate. And he did this. He got us out of the car. He pointed his gun at us. Yeah. And he told us to get in the car. And they were like, that's not a cop. Right. And the kids are like, I'm sorry, what now? 
And they said, no, that's, that, that car does not belong to a police officer. Who do you think that car belonged to? Dr. Robert Carl mm. is who that car belonged to. Uh, and they also find out that he lives right by the golf course. Okay. Right. And his brother's address is traced to a trailer out by where they found the bodies. So he knows the area. Okay. Oddly enough, he is never prosecuted for this. Nothing ever happens to him for doing that. I guess he didn't really do anything, but he did impersonate a police officer. And that's not great. But they, he, he denies it. He's like, I didn't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. They must have gotten the license plate wrong. So nuts. It's really crazy. Um, but eventually the kids also identify his picture. Right. Because they find a picture of him at the Watts Teaching Hospital staff photo. They bring that in and yeah. they're like, do you? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, it's that guy. It was 100% that guy. He also did teach Patricia. He okay. absolutely had her as a student in his class. And he doesn't have an alibi for the night of the killing. He had tickets to a UNC basketball game in Charlotte, but he didn't go as he was seen at Watts earlier that evening. And then he would have had to have driven home right. to his house near where everything happened. Hmm. So also... In Long Dance, this is this part like just destroyed my heart. Detective Bowers, who's the, who was the lead detective on this case for a long time, uh, the man is in his 80s and has had several strokes and has a really hard time mm. remembering things. And he gets very emotional about like, I'm sorry, I just can't remember anymore. I've had three strokes. Yeah. I really want to see this case solved and I feel so horrible for these kids. They're bringing him through it and he goes, Dr. Dr. Robert Carl Britt, that's the man who did this. Mm. that's the man who did this. I could never pin enough evidence to him to get him arrested, but I know he killed those kids. Wow. And it's like makes you like double over. It's just, it's so, it's so upsetting. There's also a record of a call, of a call coming to Jesse's mom, Hilda, on February 29th, 1996. And it's, the call is traced to like a local office plaza. And the person just says, I killed your son. And she says, who is this? And the person says, Dr. Britt, I killed your son. Hangs up. Now, why would you say that? Why would you do that? Why would it be you? Right. Yeah. However, that's a thing that happened and the police never investigated Dr. Britt. They never questioned him. This detective can never get like any, he can't get any traction. But in 2011, he finally is questioned. All right. The police are reopening this case. They're trying to solve it. And, and they talk to him. And the, the, Detectives that go out, it's a, a the police captain and a female detective. And at first he's flirting with the female detective. And mm -hmm. when she starts asking him about this case and not flirting with him, he does not make eye contact with her or speak to her the rest of the time. Mm -hmm. When she answers questions, he will only address the captain. He will not address her. She even says things like, I know you can hear me. I'm right here. Ignores them. Wow. Yeah, this guy hates women. But they comment on the fact that during this whole interview, he's incredibly nervous. He's shaking. His lips are quivering. He like is clearly having a hard time with being asked about these things. Right before the detectives leave, because he doesn't give them any useful information, he said, they say, you know what would really help you if you took a lie detector and a DNA test? That way we can just knock you out of our suspects. He has to leave the room and compose himself because he's so freaked out by that suggestion. Right. Then he comes back and he's like, I'll help you however I can. Here's my card. Call me. They get in their car and the phone rings because it's 2011 now. They have yeah. cell phones and it's his lawyer. 
<laughs> he hasn't even waited 30 seconds to call his lawyer, which lawyer up, I get it. Yeah. And the lawyer's like, he will not be taking a polygraph or a DNA test and you're not to contact my client again unless you have reason to. Okay. He didn't want to do that and he denied it several times since. He will not take DNA tests. He will not take a polygraph. Oh, also, do you remember who worked for him for a little while? The guy with the rope. Oh, yeah. So it's, if there's two people involved. Uh-huh. Ooh, I don't like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. The reason Dr. Britt is the leading suspect is partially because of his association with Jimmy Ray. That's what triangulates him a lot. Mm-hmm. But nobody is talking about Jimmy Ray. They're only talking about him, which right. doesn't totally add up for me. Right. Because Jimmy Ray... It- I felt so strongly about Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really compelling evidence against yeah. Jenny Wright. Agreed. The another really curious thing is that years later, after denying involvement with these hitchhikers, and when he's talking about it to the cops um, in this interview with the lady, he's like, you know, I really hope they catch whoever harassed those hitchhikers because he sounds like the same guy that killed those kids a few years ago. What kids? Oh, the that's oh, what they asked, okay. and they asked him that. What do you mean? And yeah. he said, you know, that girl, nursing student, and her boyfriend seems like it's the same person yeah. to me, which would mean it's you, yeah. because you are the one that did that to those hitchhikers. It is proven that he did that to those hitchhikers. Right. So a lot of people are like, "Is this a confession that we just can't use?" And that is all they have, right? The doctor is the doctor. Britt is the only living suspect. Okay, everybody else is dead. And then they, the, the guys who are doing the podcast find this thing where there's like a, a new DNA test where they can extract DNA from just about anything using water. They can pull it out of these ropes. Yeah. And they're like, fuck yeah, we're going to find this DNA and we're finally going to get it. And they do this sneaky Pete thing where they take a straw that Dr. Britt has drunk out of and discarded out yeah. of his trash and they have his DNA. Ha-ha! But the test doesn't work. Why? They can't get the DNA out of the ropes. They can't get enough of anything out of these Mm. old crumbling ropes to test. And so we're left empty-handed. What do we do next? What do we do now? I have no idea. But according to the podcast, the hosts are working with the authorities to solve this case. They still have, they still have a lot to do. They're still working really hard and they really believe this is going to be solved and soon. In fact, they believe this so hard that they say there's going to be an episode nine in the future. Mm. So I don't know. Here are my thoughts in summation. Who do you think did it before I get into it? What do you think? Oh, well, I, oh goodness. I mean, I feel like I'm, I don't know, like I'm led to believe, like, so I felt pretty strongly about Jimmy Ray. And you're not alone. A lot of people do. But like you said, I kept waiting for the second person. So either one of those second guy, either one of those guys afterwards seems like he could have been working with them. I kind of think it's the crazy one. Do you? Pardon my use of the word crazy. I kind of think it's the, it's the, it's Steve, Steve. Yeah. Walt. Jim, Jim, Steve Walt. I kind of think it's him. He's so unstable. He's so unstable. And he's been violent to women. He's obsessed with blondes. Yeah. I don't know. And there's no way we can prove that he didn't do it. Yeah. Or that he did. And that's the truth with everyone. I I, I agree. There's very compelling evidence that it would be Dr. Britt and Jimmy Ray. But I don't know that there's compelling evidence in my mind that it is Dr. Britt alone. No, I don't think it would be him alone. Again, listen, guys, listen to the Long Dance podcast I if you know. want all the information. Ooh, I, uncomfortable. I can't tell all the stories they tell because they are firsthand accounts and they are not oh. my interviews. So I don't really want to lay all that. Plus, we've yeah. already taken enough time. 
but here are my thoughts. And it's a bit of a ride, so go with me. This does not feel like a first rodeo or a last rodeo. Like whoever did this, this feels like a thing they like to do. Mm -hmm. But if it is, if this is the first and only time this person killed somebody, we have to consider the fact that this guy didn't mean to kill them then, most likely. He meant to hurt them. He meant to almost kill them and bring them back a bunch of times because he loves feeling like a god. But then ultimately, he did intend on releasing them, right? But he just timed things poorly. Now, a doctor would be able to control something like that. They would know when you were losing consciousness, when you're dying, when you're not. A lot better than a pedestrian anyhow, but still, mistakes are made. And that's not making light of what a horrible person this, this human is. I'm not crying, he didn't mean it. That's not a thing. I don't care what he meant to do. It's all awful. But I do think that whomever did it probably accidentally killed either Jesse or Patricia first and then had to kill the other one. Mm. Maybe not, but that's what it seems like to me. And then covered his tracks to avoid being caught. And honestly, if this was a doctor and they kept practicing, what did they do to their patients? Right. Did they just learn how to get a person this close to death but not kill them? That's an awfully dangerous game. And it's hard to believe that after one slip up, they'd have a 100% clearance rate. Mm -hmm. But people die in hospitals all the time. A slip up would be pretty hard to detect there if you're choosing your victims wisely. Follow me on this for a minute because I think there's no way in hell that whoever did this was one and done. Nor do I think that a history of being a dick or carrying a gun when we're talking about a non-shooting double homicide completes the pattern enough for most of us to be satisfied. But that doesn't mean I don't think it was one of the suspects. It very well could have been. I just don't think we're looking for the right patterns in the right places. Killing people in a hospital setting is terrifyingly easy. Most doctors and nurses who kill with who kill get away with it for a really, really long time before they're caught, and that is if they are caught at all. Mm. Look at Harold Shipman. He has literally over 100 victims. Or Michael Swango or Charles Cullen. Their stats are huge. They have so much blood on their hands that I haven't had the time to cover them. Then there's a methodology. Dangling someone on the precipice between life and death is historically a game that medical professionals who kill like to play. Jolly Jane did it, Lucy Letby, Benjamin Green, Kristen Gilbert. That's just to name a few. So it's reasonable to believe that whoever did this, if they were a medical professional, could have easily played a version of this game for the rest of their lives without being detected, especially if their fixation didn't involve actually killing people, just almost killing people. Mm. The patients they tampered with would have had to have already been ill. I mean, they're in a hospital. Or maybe they were in the emergency room where no one was sure how to treat them yet, so there's no care pattern to disrupt. Scary to think about, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And in the interest of full disclosure, there is one more theory, and I don't really think it was this, but it did give me pause for a little while. And this theory is, what if it was a prank gone horribly wrong? Some people think that Patricia and Jesse were kidnapped by a friend or several friends or a, a bachelor situation and tied up in the woods by these friends who left them there to scare them but intended on coming back and ha ha ha, let them go in like an hour. But the way they tied them up, the restraints were tight when they struggled so they would slip. So they kept accidentally choking themselves to passing out and then eventually it just tightened too much and killed them. Mm. Then when the friends returned, they panicked and covered everything up, wiped down the car, put Jesse's keys back in his pocket and ran. 
I don't like this one because in my opinion, um, first of all, it's too easy. Mm-hmm. Second of all, it's um, it takes all the blame off of everything. Oh, it was just an accident. Yeah. No, that's too creepy of an And third, accident. a prank like that is meant to be shared. Yeah. If you were going to do that, you told people you were going to do that. Yeah. And all these years later, not a single one of them ever said anything to anybody one time, not even on their deathbeds. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's possible. I don't buy it. And that's not even mentioning how hard it would be for someone to continually strangle themselves to the point of blacking out. You do it once, you don't do it again. You stop. Right. And the ropes around their neck were short and not connected to one another. This is not a saw-level contraption. I just, I just don't see the reasoning for that one. So that's all we have right now. Wow. We're just going to have to wait and hope and see. And honestly, it very well may be somebody we did not even mention. I know. I always think that, especially like... Like Faith Hedgepeth. That's who I always think of. Me too. When they announced that, we were like, what the fuck? Nobody mentioned that guy one time. No. I always think that with like these cases that go unsolved, just like... We could get some strand of DNA from something and the name could be named and it could be somebody that drops all of our jaws. Right. But... And then, you know, and that's why we can't land on these main suspects you know yeah it's like and why they weren't released because there really isn't enough for any of them right i think it was a doctor and i think they kept doing fucked up shit but in a way that they could cover their tracks oh so spooky yeah toast toast i know i hate it it's really upsetting well to patricia and jesse yes very obviously and to um, Eric and Drew at the Long Dance Podcast. Well done. Yes. They did so much good work. You guys, honestly, I will link this podcast in our uh, show description. They are the main source for any information on this case. I mean, they are everybody's source at this point. They did the damn thing. And you should go if you're interested in this case and listen to it. It is eight parts. It is, you're going to have to take Mm -hmm. your time and listen to it. Uh, And it is information heavy. But that's the only way you can, I guess form your most most informed opinion so go listen to that thank you guys for doing that work you are amazing you're great journalists hats off to you anybody else we need to toast um to rhoda the roommate rhoda the roommate whose name was real name was never revealed but yeah (laughs) you know what though they fucking did it man that's yeah a lot of people panic and do weird stuff or don't call the cops or don't look around and they did everything right yeah cheers And if we chose to park our cars out on a lover's lane, even against all good advice, we we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Two dumb twats. Two dumb twats. (laughs) Sorry, we're owning it.